Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I know I've been missing for a little bit. It's getting a little crazy over here with kind of just general life stuff. Um, But uh, good news is I was able to hire an editor with all your donations. So I'm so grateful for that. So hopefully I'll be able to get more episodes out sooner with some help. Um, But let's talk about today's episode. So today I have the honor of having... A good friend, Dr. Annie Kuo, um, who is just the nicest human um, that you will meet. Um, And she's here to share her story. And her story um, has a lot of different folds to it. (laughs) Um, She shares how her work as an integrative medicine doctor and family medicine was helpful for her during this experience. And interestingly, um, areas where it wasn't helpful, you would think sometimes, you know, like a doctor has like an upper hand on all of this and to some degree they do but at the same point in time they do have some of the same struggles we do as we're moving through this so she shares with us some of that um and she also kind of shares her experience in completing 20 ivf cycles yes 20 to zero 20 uh ivf cycles and i you know it's i can't even i did four and i'm like oh my gosh (laughs) Like, so I was overwhelmed with four, but she did 20 and she kind of talks about that experience today. Um, Also dealing with male factor infertility, endometriosis, endometriosis surgery, surrogacy, um, and the challenges that come with that and um, recurrent pregnancy loss. So lots of different things to talk about, lots of different challenges. Um, And she kind of also talks about some of those challenges and how she's been able to overcome those challenges and it's not easy um, you know some of us will struggle with one or two cycles some of us will struggle before we even get to IVF sometimes we're struggling with not being able to get pregnant and having negative pregnancy tests time and time again and um this is not to say that one is harder than the other. All these experiences are difficult for so many people. Um, but she kind of shares how she over has overcome these challenges. So um, it's a really great episode to kind of hear one other person's perspective um, on some of the emotional and mental health struggles that come along with this challenge sometimes. Um, I really hope you enjoy this episode. Please drop a five-star review and a written review. Um, It would really help share these stories to a bigger audience. And if you loved this episode, I would love, love, love if you could share this with others that you might think would benefit from this information I provide here. And as I said earlier, I really want to thank all the listeners for donating to the podcast. So today's episode was made possible by all of you listeners. Um, So as you know, I operate this podcast on my own time um, when I'm able to. And lately, it hasn't been as much as I want to. So anything you might be able to do to help support would be really, really helpful. Um, Because of you, I was able to get an editor for these episodes. His name is Connor Doyle. I'll drop a link below to his Instagram. 
Um, but because of you, I was able to get some help. So hopefully these will come out a little bit faster. I still have to record portions of these um, intros for the episode. So um, that's on me. <laughs> But um, they hopefully will come out sooner. So thank you so much. Um, I uh, will also drop a link for donations um, in the show notes. And there will just be a buy me a coffee link. Or you can subscribe um, for, I think there's um, a $5, $10, I think a $20 monthly um, donation if that's what you would like. Um, but there is also a one-time donation, which I would be grateful for anything. Um, so I'll leave a link in the show notes for you. Anything would be helpful. Um, there's a lot to talk about today, so I will try and keep this short. Um, hopefully these are getting shorter <laughs> as I go along. I know I'm a bit of a talker, uh, but this is a really great episode. Um, if you don't know, um, Annie uh, did end up having her babies uh, through surrogacy, and if you go to her um, account, I'll drop a link for that too. Um, you'll be able to see the story behind that. So this was obviously done before, um, her babies were delivered. So, um, congratulations to her. Um, you know, it's not an easy feat to make it to 20 IVF cycles and then, you know, finally get what you're looking for. So I'm so, so happy for her and I hope you'll go over to her account, send her some love. Um, but yeah, let's get started. Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician, and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only, and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique, and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. And today I'm super, super excited um, to have Dr. Annie Quo on. She is um, a physician and an IVF warrior, and she has really, really, really interesting story and a lot to share with us today. So I'm so excited to have her. Thank you so much for being on the show with me. Hey, hey, Victoria. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share my story and hopefully, you know, support others if you know, anyone, anything I say resonates with anybody. Yeah, no, I'm so excited. Like when we first talked, I remember, well, first of all, I remember we talked for a really long time because it was super fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also because you have so many interesting parts to your story. So the the first thing I want to talk about is like the physician part, because I think um, we think that, that that kind of gives you a um, kind of head start. And I do kind of want to talk about that a little bit as far as, you know, young professionals who are going into a career track that they know they're going to be spending a lot of time and energy building. I think that's something important to kind of talk about too. But let's start with kind of your background. So you're an integrative medicine doctor. What is integrative medicine and how is that different from like traditional medicine? Yeah, great question. I love it. So, I, so my background is that I'm a family medicine physician, right? So I, you know, did all my training um, with, you know, like residency, med school, all that, everything. Conventional medicine is amazing, right? Obviously, like IVF, right? Like IVF would not be possible without all that. But I just, 
Um, I really like the idea of like using other modalities, right? That might be a little bit more because, you know, with medications, there's a lot of potential side effects. Um, and, you know, it's always about weighing the risks and benefits, right? And so for, you know, some people, the potential benefits really uh, outweigh the risk. So it's okay to do medications. Like, you know, in my case, like I chose to do IVF, right? But um, but what I like about integrated medicine is that, you know, it touches upon like, um, I mean, it touches upon like lifestyle, you know, and like, you know, I think it's more emphasized rather, sorry, in conventional medicine, of course, like lifestyle is addressed too, but it's not, um, but I think it tends to take a little bit more of a backseat, right? Versus with integrative medicine, lifestyle supplements, maybe some natural remedies. Um, you know, the focus is more about like, let's support the body. Let's kind of bring everything in balance. You know, homeostasis is when the body is in balance, right? And there's just so many things in our modern world, you know, that we either can control or cannot control, right? That can stress the body and bring it out of balance. And then we start to see, you know, disease and symptoms and dysfunction. And so what I like about integrative medicine is that there's just a bigger focus on um, really trying to support the body and, you know, figure out, okay, what are the things that might be contributing? What can we, you know, what do we, the things that we can control, right? What can we remove? What can we add in that might, you know, just like guide the body towards more healing, right? Because our bodies are really amazing, you know, and I think, um, you know, like it's, it definitely, there's definitely, you know, situations where it's very appropriate to just like go take a medication, like for sure, you know, and I, and I do that too for myself and my own like health, you know, issues where a medication is like definitely very valuable and powerful or surgery is very valuable and powerful, right? Absolutely. But, you know, in other instances, it's nice when you can, you know, um, use modalities that are a little bit more supportive, right? And don't have like as high potential for side effects or ideally, which is what I love is to do them all together at the same time, right? So, so for me, like, you know, like I, I've like often thought about how, like, you know, it's really easy when it comes to infertility and IVF, right. Especially, um, when you've had like a very like challenging journey, it's, it's really easy to think like, why me? Like, why, you know, this is so unfair, right? Like, why did this, why is this my path? But, um, I already, I also recognize, sorry, I'm already, <laughs> I'm already getting emotional, I brought a box of tissues for this podcast. Oh. Talking about my story was going to be a little tricky for me, but I feel like I, I've also, you know, can take a step and, and step back and look at this and be like, you know what? Like, yeah, it sucks that this is my path, but also like, I'm, I'm so lucky. I'm so privileged. I'm so fortunate that I'm, you know, I'm a physician. So that makes it easier for me to navigate, you know, all the steps of IVF. And then as an integrated physician, like integrated medicine and infertility, actually it's, it's one, like, you know, it's such a good, match. So the two of them are so like, so, you know, working with the REI, working with like your, your acupuncturist or an integrated physician, right? This is like, um, there's just like so many benefits. And I think this is the best way to approach IVF. And so I think it's really amazing to see like, you know, like I, I see a lot of people, a lot of people on social media and they're really trying to use, you know, all those aspects and all those tools. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that's just amazing that, that, like people are taking that approach when it comes to their health and wellness and they're taking that approach when it comes to infertility. So for me, you know, I definitely feel like super fortunate that as a physician, as an integrated physician, you know, it, it definitely has given me a lot of advantages in terms of approaching, you know, my IVF journey. But at the same time, you know, like even though I've had these like tools and I have all these resources and I have all this knowledge, it's also like, it's also been one of the hardest things I've ever gone through, you know? So so I just, I just really think about all the people that are going through IVF, right. And don't have, they're not a physician. They're not an angry physician for me. And I think about like, it was so hard for me. I can only imagine how hard it has been, you know, for others that, you know, don't have, don't have those resources. 
So as far as integrative medicine goes, because I really agree that there are, how do I want to say this? <laughs> I want to be respectful of all the different um, tools that we can use. But um, I think that there are gaps in traditional um, medicine that integrative medicine um, can kind of fill. And I think, you know, a lot of us do want to try, or at least in the beginning, we want to have the opportunity to see how we can optimize our own fertility before jumping into these things, because it's a combination of things, right? Because it is, I mean, IVF and fertility treatment is exceptionally costly and particularly in the state of California, because we don't, we don't have mandated coverage, right? So a lot of us in California um, are forced to pay for our treatment cash, right? If we don't get coverage from our employer. So I think having these other tools, and sometimes it's easy to kind of, I don't want to say easy, but sometimes um, finding balance in your lifestyle, it may be something small and easy that you can do to optimize your fertility. And like you said, sometimes that's not enough. Like a lot of us know when we've been through multiple cycles that like, eating more kale is not going to make me like more fertile. You know what I mean? There's going to be a point where that is, but if you're just starting out, then it, or if you're going through your IVF process and you're going through um, fertility, you still want to optimize your health and you can certainly use these integrative medicine tools to do that. Um, But I, so for you, because, because you were introduced to integrative medicine later in your career, right? When, When did that happen? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I would say that, okay, so I definitely grew up with integrative medicine, although I, it wasn't really called that then. But, you know, as a Taiwanese American, right, growing up with immigrant parents, my parents, like they, they took me to a pediatrician, right? So I had my pediatrician, but they would also take me to an acupuncturist. Um, and they, and they primarily took me to an acupuncturist for things like I had painful periods when I was younger, you know, so they, t- they took me for that and I had, and I have allergic rhinitis, so they would take me for that, you know, so, um, but then they also took me to get like allergy shots too, you know, so, um, so, you know, they were, my parents were already taking an integrative approach for my health, you know, when I was a kid. So to me, it was very like natural and normal, like, why not, you know, like, yeah, let's try some medications, but let's, let's also try to do some things that might be like, you know, that might help heal the body and kind of or like, you know, re- reduce the symptoms um, in a different, with a different, like, you know, modality. Um, but then, yeah, but then I, you know, ultimately when I, um, you know, decided what I wanted to be when I grew up, right, I landed on being, you know, like going to medical school and doing all, you know, doing, doing all of my training that way. But then, but then, yeah, it wasn't until I finished when I was getting closer to the end of my residency, when I was looking for a job, I, you know, that's when I decided, okay, what kind of, what kind of physicians do I want to be and what kind of practice and what kind of setting do I want? And so, so I didn't do like, I wasn't like fully like doing integrated medicine until I finished my training. Mm-hmm. So, cause I kind of, I, I want to kind of bring this all together. So, you know, we, we talked about kind of this background. And so when you were in medical school, was there any talk, was there any conversation around you and your cohort about fertility? Was that, no. was that a thought? No, like <laughs> not at all. Not at all. No. And then, so I, I like, I, and I'm so, I'm so happy that I'm seeing that now though. I see that people are talking about that now and I think that's amazing, but no, not at all. So like I, um, to give you the context of the timing, you know, I, I was in med school. I started in 2007, graduated in 2011. Right. And then residency was 24, uh, 2011 to 2014. And like, I know there was no talk about like, 
you know, like, should you freeze your eggs? Right. And then also, um, and yeah, and it's a good point you bring up because it's like, I think, I think the stats are like one in four female physicians, you know, have infertility and it makes sense, right? Because of uh, all the training and there's never a good time to have a baby, you know, med school is not a good time. Residency is not a good time when you're done with your training. That's not, and people do fellowships, which takes longer. You know, I did the, as a family medicine physician, I, mine was three years, you know, so that was like, that's like the shortest, um, but, you know, people go on to do fellowships and then when they join a practice, right, then they're the new physician and then they can't, you know, they don't, they can't take, they don't feel like they can take maternity leave. So, right. Cause you got to prove yourself. Yeah. And then, you know, I, this is not just unique to, I mean, you know, for many other career paths, right. There's never a good time, but, but especially right with physicians, especially the people that are supposed to be taking care of other people, you know, they're not really given the opportunity to make their health and wellness and their family plans, right. A priority. So no. And the other thing that, um, the other thing that also I wish was different and I'm so glad it's, it's better now is that when I learned about endometriosis in med school, I was like, oh, I probably have that. Right. Uh-huh. But you also say that about a thousand other things. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I really, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> Um, but really with endometriosis, right. And, you know, I'm sure like, I don't remember exactly the conversations I had with my doctors before med school, but I'm sure I brought it. Um, I'm sure my painful periods came up and no one ever, no one ever, t- you know, discussed endometriosis as a possibility. And then, you know, as a, as a family medicine physician, I got training in OB-GYN, right. We got, we have a lot of OB-GYN training. Um, and, you know, I think like, there was, there's no talk about how endometriosis can affect, affect fertility. The only thing I knew about infertility and like, and fertility and endometriosis was that, okay, maybe if the endometriosis like grows in a way that like can obstruct, you know, some of the, like, like the fallopian tubes that might cause, that was the only thing that I learned about, you know, and it, and it wasn't even like, it was like, um, emphasized, you know? So for me, like I, you know, my husband and I started trying to conceive when I was 33, um, and I was, a, I was, I was a resident then and, you know, um, had no reason to suspect that we have a hard time, we would have a hard time conceiving. And, you know, we, we did the whole, like, we'll try for one year, you know, and then we do our workup. But if I had known that like, you know, endometriosis was such a p- potential factor, um, I probably would have like just tried for six months and then like, you know, moved on. And that would have been more appropriate. You know, that would be a better recommendation uh, for somebody that where you suspect there might be a fertility issue. So, you know, so this is like, you know, so of course, like how do other people, like I'm a physician, I got trained in like women's health yet. So how are other people going to, you know, how, how can other people get this knowledge and information if like your physicians are not getting this information? So, well, and particularly if you get dismissed, even as a physician, you kind of got dismissed. You're like, oh, well, you know, you know, like it it is like so difficult to endometriosis, I think by itself, it's just like a difficult Thing like I don't want to go on a tangent about the lack of women's healthcare and no, stuff but, that gets addressed. No, but I hear you. Like even like one one of the sorry to interrupt. Um, one of the first like one of the one of the um one of the OB guys that I saw um when I was like starting our workup, and she's in academics, right? So she's like training other OB guys, and she did not send me to an REI. You know, I sent myself to an REI. She, you know, we did our workup and then we, she made some recommendations. And then I was like, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to do that. I, I don't, you know, yeah. and I, and so fortunately I knew to advocate for myself and I was like, I don't think this is right. Like I'm going to go see an REI. And I did. I'm so, you know, cause if I had, yeah, cause yeah. So, 
I, I think, okay, there's like so many things I want to say right now. Um, so, um, there's a couple of things. I think having someone like primary care who can understand the struggle with infertility is so important too, because like so many people get dismissed for so many different reasons when it comes to infertility. Um, and then I think also the whole endometriosis thing with painful periods, it's like, eh, you know, some people have painful periods. I think it's so easy to kind of like dismiss it, but I think having um, someone like you kind of bridging the gap, not, not necessary just in primary care, but just as someone who is outside um, of women's health. Cause even like you said, even the OBGYNs, even the like OB guys are like, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to diagnose, whatever. But I think it's so important to have like an ally in those spaces to kind of help you navigate some of these feelings. Because, you know, if you wanted to, let's say you were, you know, you were first trying your resident, you were younger at the time. And you said, Hey, you know, I want to work up. And then it's like, well, let's try for a year. It's like, you know, if you had someone who had been through that, like you, you'd probably be like, I got you. <laughs> like, yes, let me help you. Like, I know what that's like. Um, yeah, but yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's this, I, I think, you know, you have such an interesting background to be able to provide so much support given your history and given your experience, which we will go into first kind of going into medicine and not knowing what was ahead for you <laughs> as far as needing to start your family and all that stuff. I, I can only imagine like, you know, during residency, you're like, wait, what, you know, like why, what now? And then kind of feeling like the system that you were in somewhat failed you, not like totally, but I mean, you know, to a degree where you said, wait a minute, like, I don't think I agree with your recommendation, but you know, also towards the end of your residency or kind of when you started your new career when you really focused on the integrative medicine part did you start to take that in and change your lifestyle based on oh, yeah. your yeah, new yeah. specialty like did you think okay i'm going to like biohack my way into like making this work for me yeah yeah for sure yeah absolutely um yeah so i mean i think like during my residency i felt like i you know had like a reasonably healthy lifestyle, right? I was doing the best I can, I could, but you know, I also was, you know, recognized like, you know, it's, I'm just like sort of trying to survive residency. Right. Um, so I felt like my diet was like, you know, decent in the sense where it was like, you know, mostly whole foods, but definitely ate out a lot because we were, we we're both busy, my husband and I. Um, but yeah, once I, once I started, once I joined my practice, I, you know, I was very much okay. You know, like I definitely want to practice what I preach, right. That's like, that's important to me. You know, if I'm, if I'm going to recommend anything to a patient, I got to make sure that it's doable. Right. And so if I can't do it, how, like how, who am I to recommend something to somebody else? Right. So, um, so that's, that was important to me. Um, but then also, but also for myself, like there was like, um, there was, you know, like we, cause we started, I joined the practice in 2014 and then I started, um, and then we, we were already like doing, like, I started making lifestyle changes and then we, you know, we did that for like six months before, yeah, roughly six months before we started, um, you know, doing IVF. Um, so, you know, if we're, so it was, yeah, definitely like, you know, diet was huge. Um, but you know, the other, the other thing that helped me, um, with like, 
what the, so that what motivated me to do all this like biohacking and like lifestyle changes and trying different things with like supplements and lifestyle and like other modalities to complement you know what I was doing with like fertility treatments um was okay so besides like you know yes definitely like for me to like you know practice what I preach and then also um to do what I could to help with like egg quality and increase fertility like, obviously that was a goal too but the the other thing that was helpful for me was um that was very motivating for me was my endometriosis you know so my periods have been like very very painful my whole life uh so you know to me like I always like have this goal of okay you know what like I definitely found myself I think it's easy for many people myself included where I would get into this mindset of like uh, you know this is so unfair you know why why do I have to change my diet so that I can potentially get pregnant, right? Maybe get pregnant, maybe, maybe not, right? Like other people don't have to do that, right? <laughs> like there's a lot of like, why do I have to do all this acupuncture so that I could get pregnant? Or, you know, why do I have to do IVF? Or why do I have to take all these supplements, right? And so it's really... um it's really easy to fall into that mindset and, that, and that's okay and it's totally fair. And those stories are very fair and reasonable to hold. But um, but what helped me was that because I have such severe endometriosis and I'm like, I, I, like I suffer quite a bit every month. Um, my, my, a big motivator for me was to think about, okay, you know what, if the, what, anything that helps with my endometriosis symptoms is probably going to help with my egg quality. Right. And anything that helps with my endometriosis symptoms would be just amazing. You know, my life is so impacted and like very much like dictated by like, you know, the kind of day I'm going to have is that very much like dependent on like what I'm, what's going on with my period, what's going on with my endometriosis. So for me, like, I think that was helpful to like focus on, okay, I'm like, you know, I'm doing all these, um, I'm not just doing all this stuff for IVF. I'm also doing all this stuff for my health. It's for my wellness. It's for my body. It's for my endometriosis, you know? So, so I think that kind of made it a little bit more manageable. No, you, can you tell me some of the things you introduced into your lifestyle that kind of helped with that? Um, I think, okay. So for, for endometriosis specifically, I think, you know, it's, it's such a complex condition. Um, and I can't say I by any means like healed myself from it, but I do think I've gotten my symptoms. I feel like with a lot of like trial and error, I've gotten my symptoms to a place where they're most, they're, they're, they're significantly better. So acupuncture and like, you know, taking herbs, I do think that that can help a lot of people. So, and I, I do know a lot of acupunctures that have had like a lot of really great acupunctures that have had a lot of success with that. So I think Chinese medicine, acupuncture, super valuable um, for me. And I, and I, w- I went to some like really amazing acupunctures, but for me, unfortunately, I think it, I'm just such a complex, challenging case that all the things that typically work for endometriosis didn't really make a di- make have a significant impact for me. Um, but I think like for me, like my diet definitely had the biggest impact um, for my, my endometriosis symptoms where, you know, if I'm if I eat a certain way and drink a certain way, you know, I do think that my symptoms like the next month or the following months are going to be a little bit better. It's really, it's really hard though, because I say this in my, with my patients, you know, I think like food really is medicine for our bodies, right? Food is probably the most impactful thing I think you can do for your health and wellness, but it's also the most challenging area to shift, right? For everybody, you know, so, um, and I get that, you know, for me, it's like, it took me, you know, cause I've been eating, like, I've been like working on my diet since like 2014 and it's only in the last couple of years where I think I'm like in a pretty good place with it where I feel like it's like, you know, where I feel like I'm not like deprived. I feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm like eating nourishing foods and it doesn't feel like it's like hard, you know, but it doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean I don't sometimes indulge and it doesn't mean sometimes I do get tempted, you know, and it's a little hard, but so for me, it's really, I think the low carb, low sugar, I think that's the biggest thing. 
for me. I think obviously eating whole foods, I think that makes a difference, but then, um, but I was already doing that. So I think low carb, low sugar is important. Um, and then I think the like, you know, I know a lot, I see a lot of people doing like gluten-free, dairy-free, and I think there's like probably some value in doing that. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think like everybody has to be, everybody with endometriosis has to be completely gluten and dairy-free. I think it's, you know, very individualized, but I think less gluten and dairy is probably better. And the, the quality of the gluten and dairy that you're eating does make a difference, you know, um, and then for me also, I found like, and this is a little bit more um, in the Chinese medicine side, I did find eating more like warming foods are better for my endometriosis. So like, so t- warming in the sense of like temperature. So like not eating as many salads. Um, and then, so eating like food that's like cooked, right. And then also eating foods that are more like warm in quality. So like watermelon is a very like considered a cold food in like Chinese medicine. And then um, like ginger and like, you know, spicy foods are more warming. So so for me, like, you know, just trying to let, like drink like teas or like room temperature, but not ice water, you know, and then obviously things like alcohol, you know, those are also not great for my endometriosis. So, um, so di- I think diet, you know, for me, like I think diet had a, had a big impact. And then uh, I, you know, I think also stress has a big impact for endometriosis and also the, the body in general and other conditions. Um, and this is not to say like, you know, I, 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 when I, when I talk, when I think about stress, like I, I, this is not to say like, you know, the whole, like just relax and you'll get pregnant. Yes. Like yes. Not, yes. I don't, I don't mean it that way by any means, but I, I do think like, I don't necessarily mean like if you just relax, your endometriosis is going to get better. Right. But I, I've noticed this for myself. Like when I, when I have very stressful months, my endometriosis gets worse. Right. And the months where I've like, kind of like focused a little bit more on like relaxing my body and like, like kind of like calming down my nervous system those months are a little bit easier, you know? So, so I think it's like meditation, mindfulness, mindset, you know, um, I think like some sort of practice therapy, whatever that, whatever that looks, you know, whatever that looks like for you, whatever works for you, but something in that like emotional, you know, space is, um, is really important when it comes to conditions like endometriosis and fertility, but also, you know, like, you know, just for everything else too, for just general health. I think that's really important. Um, like uh, heating pads, you know, those are like, but those are more like symptomatic relief. But I, I do find that those are helpful too. For for me, they they were helpful. So, yeah. Um. So okay. So let's kind of circle back. So you were, uh, you have always had painful periods. You went through medical school. You are in residency now, and you've decided, okay, we want to expand our family. We want to start trying. You tried for a while, a year, right? Did you try for a year or no? Mm-hmm. And then we, yeah. and then we did our, yeah. And then we, and, we started our workup. Yeah. And then what did you find out in your workup? Was everything normal or did you have? Um, everything was fine. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think I had like a polyp or something that they saw when they did my HSG, but that was it. We had male factor though. Oh yeah. So that was that, that was a, that, that came up. We had male factor. Yeah. Was it just like low sperm count or morphology? I think he had... The motility was low, I think. And I think the morphology was like not, you know, there's like, I feel, I think there's a few metrics for morphology and I think he was like slightly, actually I can tell you, he had low motility, abnormal morphology. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what else was in your workup? Like what did they do for you for your workup? Uh, I mean, it was, um, it, I think it was. You know, I don't remember, but I think, you know, I think it was like FSH, right? LH and probably like a, I don't even know if my AMH was included, actually. 
I don't remember. Um, but yeah, there was like some some blood tests. I did the HSG and then he did a semen analysis. And then and then yeah, and then basically like I was um during it was during my last year of residency. So I was like studying for boards and like we had like senior projects to like finish up or or like a, a yeah, we had like a project we had to do and then finding a job. So then we I did I did I did delay maybe by like three to six months or so before we started working with the REI. Um and then the, um, but even then we like met with REIs and then I decided, okay, you know what, let's like take six months. At the time we thought it was just male factor. Um, I, I suspected I had endometriosis, but nobody seemed concerned about that. So I thought, okay, let's take like six months and like, you know, I'll work on my lifestyle. He'll work on his. He did a lot of acupuncture and let's, let's retest the semen analysis. And like, of course, like continue, you know, time to intercourse then and see what happens. Um, and I think we... I think we repeat, like, I don't think his, I think his semen analysis actually did eventually change, but it did improve, but it took, it took a long time. And then, you know, of course, like we were still not, you know, getting pregnant on our own. Um, and so then we, you know, um, started actually doing like IUI, IVF. Um, so we did, you know, we did some IUI. Um, I think we only did one though. And then we did, I had a hysteroscopy to remove a polyp. Um, and then, and then we did our first like egg retrieval. Um, and you know, with our first egg retrieval, we did good at day five and then we got like, you know, by day three, we had four embryos and then by day five, we only had one. And then that one was, um, abnormal. So then at that point, you know, cause at that point, like I, we consulted three REIs and then picked the one to work with and they all made it sound like we'd be like one and done. And so, I, and I didn't, and I didn't really like, you know, I didn't realize how complex like IVF can be for some people. So with that one, that first one, you know, failing, like, you know, my husband and I were totally devastated and, um, and you know, I realized like, oh, okay, this is like probably going to be a lot more complicated than everyone else is letting it on to be. So that's when I like, you know, switched REI, started doing more research and like started being, cause like at that point I feel like I was a little bit more just like, okay, let me just be the patient. And like, let me, let me just kind of, you know, like just go along with whatever my doctors are recommending. And then, but that's when I realized, okay, you know what? I think this might be a little bit more complicated. Cause it sounds like you, you consulted with a few different REIs. How did you pick one? Like, how did you know it was the right one for you at that time? Cause I yeah, didn't, I, mean, I just yeah. went with one. I was like, ah, oh, you seem good enough. Cause I also didn't know <laughs> that this could be complicated. And so I was like, oh, does it really matter? I'm sure it's fine. But um, right. I quickly learned yeah, that yeah. that is not true. <laughs> So there was like two, two of them were like referrals, but they also, the referrals I felt like came from, um, in hindsight and, and, you know, I, they came from, from referrals from people that didn't, that weren't like from other physicians that, but I don't think they were very familiar with like IVF. Right. So they, I think they, you know, had knew this, knew these doctors and like generally heard that they were good, but I don't think they knew that much about, you know, infertility and IVF and what it involves. And so, the one that I went with was actually a referral for my acupuncturist. So my acupuncturist, you know, like they do like this office does work with a lot of um, IVF patients. So, you know, so for me, like I felt confident that like, okay, their recommendation would be good. And so that was the one that we picked. And that, that's really all the research that we, that we went into. We met with all three of them, but I, I kind of already went to it thinking that that third one would be the one we would go with just because I thought the recommendation was stronger, right? Since it was somebody that already like was familiar with that world. Um, and you know, we like that, we like that doctor and they seem great, but, um, and, and you know, they were, it was, a, it was a great experience, but what, when I, when we had that first cycle, 
you know, um, not, you know, basically no blastocysts and not, nothing usable, right? No usable embryos. Um, I, then I, you know, I, I talked to our, our doctor to see like what they would, what they recommended, what they would do next. And then I also went and like consulted like three other, I think like three other doctors too, to see what they recommended. Um, and basically based on like what, you know, everyone recommended after they had looked at the data from the one cycle, that's how I decided, you know, to switch doctors and pick the, um, the second doctor that we ended up cycling with. Mm-hmm. So. so let me, let me talk about the first one again. So with your first cycle, cause I always like to ask everyone what they were told their first IVF cycle. So like, did yeah. you, what was your expectation for after retrieval? Um, my, I mean, like all three doctors basically were like male factor, you could try IUI, you know, but probably, you know, like IUI could fix male factor, but you know, probably you know, don't like basically don't like let's not get our hopes up with IUI and like let's not do too many of them. Um, and even like the the doctor that I end up cycling with, we only did one IUI before, you know, like a common like commonly they like to do three, right? It's kind of the rough number, but she we only did one. Um so yeah, so they were, you know, they were all like, you know, male factor, maybe try an IUI or two, but like probably not worth like, you know, spending too much more time on that. And then let's do IVF and like, yeah, you'll be like I mean, they be, I mean, obviously no one, no one ever guaranteed that the one would work for us, but they all seem to think it would be super easy, you know, and we would have a baby yeah. after one cycle. You and know. did and, you, you know, and now, you know, yes, 20 yeah, cycles and then, later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we'll get to that too, but I mean, yeah, yeah, also yeah. like, what was the expectation for your, like, did they tell you, like, we expect based on your AMH, this number of eggs, we expect the, your blastocyst attrition rate to look like this. We expect you to have this many blasts. Was that ever they, discussed? I don't think, no, I don't, they, it didn't, you know, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think I knew that there was going to be like the number of eggs and then the number of embryos. And then by day three and by day five, like, I think I did know that the number that you like, the number of eggs is not equal to the number of like blastocysts or the number of embryos. Like, you know, so I, I think I knew that, but I don't remember I don't think there was a lot of detail or time spent on like, you know, what to expect from the first cycle. No, it was because uh, it was like that was like 20, 2015. So it's a while ago. And and how old were you? Uh, so, yeah. So 2015 and 35. OK, 35. And so after when you had your WTF appointment, what did they <laughs> talk to you about? Did they say like, oh, you know, this is, you know, likely still a male factor issue or like, oh, this might be an egg quality issue. Did they have that discussion they, with you? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think it was like, so I still don't think, I think endometriosis was still not like front and center, you know, like, oh, you know, like maybe it's this, right? Um, but I, I do think it was it, like after that first cycle, it was a little bit more like, OK, you know, like, no, we don't think like male factors really the concern. Right. Because um, I think I was doing XC, too. So I was like, OK, that kind of takes the male factor almost out of the equation. Um, and they I think they were thinking, OK, you know, like you just might be somebody who didn't respond that well to this protocol. So we just need to, you know, well. It was, yeah, I think it was just like, it was a matter of, I think, finding the right protocol for me. So I think that was, they were thinking, it's like, okay, well, that protocol might not have been right for you. Maybe we need to change protocols or do like, you know, maybe like make some adjustments to that protocol. There was also one doctor also thought it was, um, it was a question of timing where like, um, my, I think she thought that my eggs were like overcooked, meaning like the doctor had allowed to go too many days on the stims and for, and she, she would have like, you know, she would have like triggered me earlier. 
Um, cause I think she thought that that's why we had, um, so I'm looking, I think she thought that that's why we like, we could have gotten more mature eggs out of that cycle. If we had done that is what her thinking was. And then, you know, that would have increased our chances of having a better outcome. And then another doctor just also thought it was just like a luck and numbers game, you know, where it's like, you know, you may like at 35, I don't remember the stats, but I just, I mean, I know at 40, at 40, 41, it's like one in four, one in five. I think mature eggs are going to be like normal, can become like normal um, embryos or I don't, sorry, I don't remember the stats I've been quoted, but I think it's something like one in four, one in five. So at 35, you know, they would assume it's better, but, but I just remember a doctor, one of the REIs we consulted was, he just thought it was a little bit of a numbers game and it was just like a chance, you know? So it's like, okay, we just got unlucky that you know, the eggs and the embryos that were made just happened to be not, not, you know, we're not, we're not viable. Um, so just to, it was like a, okay, we just have to like keep trying basically. And what made you switch from your first doctor to another doctor? I mean, I guess the, the second doctor, um, I, I just felt like what he recommended just made more sense to me. And I think he was a little bit more like, okay, like, you know, let's, so he recommended that I get endometriosis, the laparoscopic surgery for endometriosis. Um, and then he also recommended, so my husband had a varicocele. So um, he also recommended that, you know, Ray, my husband, get a varicocele surgery too. And he wasn't necessarily like, oh, the, if you do these things, it will definitely help with both sperm and egg quality. But he was, he was of the mindset, you know what, like, I think they could help. I think we should just optimize everything we can, you know, and... And then, and then let's start try. And then he also had the hope that like maybe IUI would work after these procedures were done. Um, so we, we did do some more IUI with him. And then, cause he, he, he just like, based on that one cycle that I did, he suspected that, you know, I would, I, maybe I, my body just didn't really like the stem medications, you know, and that, um, so, you know, maybe like, I, it would just be a little bit harder for me to make like good eggs um, from like IVF, you know, SIM protocols. So, um, so that's, you know, so he, he recommended surgery for both of us. And then he recommended that we try a couple of IUIs, which we did before we tried IV, IVF again. And so I think like, it just like, based on the, like, I think the three or four opinions that we had gotten after that first cycle, you know, it just, we just felt like he, um, what he said made, made the most sense for us. So did you, so I have a couple of questions. One, did you want to switch doctors because you just wanted to try something different? And two, for the endometriosis, how did your second doctor come around to thinking that that was a problem for you? Because, you know, for so long, like you said, you had, it had been a non-issue. So what, at this point, did it, did it become an issue? Um, I think, I think he's, well, let's see, I'm, I, I assume he was just going based on my symptoms and I, I might've, I probably told him I thought I had endometriosis. Um, and then he had me do like, a, a CA-125 marker, I think, which is not diagnostic for endometriosis. And they're like, it's a, it's a tumor marker, but there's a lot of things that can elevate it. But, uh, but for, but he thought it'd be worth it to check it. I think it was C125. Sorry, it might be. But anyway, so he had me check a tumor marker too. And it was elevated, like pretty high. So I think for him, it's uh it was like another clue that to suggest, okay, maybe endometriosis. Like, yes, she has endometriosis. She has all the signs and symptoms. This one marker is high. She has infertility. She has um, 
you know, and she has like, she has one cycle that did not respond well to a protocol that, you know, for most people they would do, you know, they would get better outcomes. So I think to him, that was probably enough data to say, okay, let's, let's look and see if she has endometriosis and let's like take it out if it's there. And if it, if she has it and we remove it, then that will probably improve that, you know, the outcomes of the IVF, but future IVF, if we did that. Um, and then I think, I mean, I, I guess I just like, you know, I, um, I, I think at that point I had learned enough about IVF where I knew it was like, you know, it's, um, it's, it wasn't like, it didn't make sense to stay with the same doctor if I didn't think that they were going to offer something different enough, you know, to, you know, so I think that was like, you know, and th- that doctor was great. Like, you know, had a great experience with their office. I just, but I, I you know, and maybe I'm wrong, you know, maybe I, we would have had that, but I just like from our conversations with, um, you know, our like WTF conversations, I didn't necessarily feel like, you know, like the next steps were going to make uh, produce a different outcome, you know, so. Well, and I think it's so important to, because I get a lot of questions too about like, oh, I don't know if my doctor's right for me. And I think it's important to say it's okay to get another opinion. Like, you know, and it's not like you're in this to make best friends. (laughs) Like it is okay if, you know, you need or want to get another opinion or switch doctors. It happens all the time. And I just want to make sure. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's like, I think it's, you know, I think any complex medical condition, right. You really have to advocate for yourself. And that, and that does involve getting other opinions and it does involve getting, doing your own research. Um, like, unfortunately, like there are a lot of amazing doctors out there and they, uh, you know, they all want to do their best to like, have you, you know, have you have the best outcome, but you know, there's, they're still human. Right. And they, they can only do so much, you know, and even for me in my own practice, you know, like a hundred percent support um, my patients getting other opinions. Like, you know, when it, when someone has a complex medical condition, I want, I don't want to be the only one. Honestly, I don't want to be the only person on their team. I mean, if I can be, and I can help them. Great. But if I, you know, but if it's really complex, like I'd much rather have, you know, other people on their team supporting them, you know? So. Yeah. I was talking to someone else about this and I said, um, I kind of, I kind of like defined it as like, you want to like co-pilot the plane. You don't want to just be a passenger. So it's yeah. like totally yeah. fine to work as a team because like, honestly, these REIs need you right on board and you need them. So it really is about a collaborative team kind of effort absolutely. with you yeah, absolutely, and your yep. physician. And if it doesn't feel good and if it doesn't feel right, it is okay to move on, even if it's a personality mismatch. Because if you don't have any trust going into any of it, then you're going to feel shitty the Mm -hmm. whole time. You're going to feel like they're not doing right by you if you don't have that trust, if you haven't developed it, you know? Yeah, no, there was a, there was a doctor that there was REI that we consulted and they had like an amazing reputation and they like, we had a we had like a few appointments because I was actually going to cycle with this, uh, with this, uh, with this physician. And, um, you know, I was very impressed by like, their approach. And I was, you know, I was like, okay, you know, this all makes sense. But then like we started, you know, going through the workup and um, I just found like, I couldn't really talk to them if I had questions, if I didn't understand something or if I like wasn't sure about something. And to me, like, um, so I ended up, we ended up, you know, not cycling with them because I was like, you know, if I, if I can't ask you questions, if I don't feel comfortable asking questions and like, you know, like I don't think our personalities are the right fit and, you know, so yes, absolutely. I think that's important. So yeah, we ended up, you know, obviously we ended up not, not cycling with that, that practice and that doctor. 
Yeah. So, okay. So you got to the second doctor, you, you had gone through your first cycle that was unsuccessful. Um, he kind of had a plan for you. Um, Ray was going to do surgery for his varicocele, and then you were going to mm-hmm. explore endometriosis, surgery, laparoscopic excision. Um, let's talk about that because as far as endometriosis goes and endometriosis surgery, that's like a whole other like can of worms to open up. And I know when I was looking yeah. into it, for yeah. me, I was like, I don't even know who I think like I talked to you and I talked to a couple other people and, and <laughs> you guys like gave me some things to kind of look into. But I'm like, I, I'm sure there's someone else like me out there who's like, I have no idea where to yeah, start. So when you got that information and you knew you had to do that, did were you given a name or did you do your own kind of like reading yeah. So no, great question. So I, I got really lucky here. Okay. Where I, cause I also did not know that this surgery was so complex and you really can't just go to anybody. Right. So, um, so, so I got really lucky where my REI actually recommended like an excisional endometriosis surgeon up in the Bay area. Um, and so, um, so, uh, yeah, so I don't, remember doing much research because he gave me that referral and I was like, okay, you know, like if you're telling me to travel and the LA has like tons of surgeons and doctors, you know, so like, um, but if you're telling me to travel, you know, to another, you know, city to like get surgery, then like this guy must be legit. Right. So, so I don't think I, so in, in hindsight, like, yes, you know, I could have walked into like getting surgery with somebody that, you know, because I didn't do my research. So I, I'm really fortunate that my REI actually gave me an excellent referral. Well, and I think too, when you look at that referral that you got, this is like a pioneer. This is someone who has done a lot of them. And I think that's another question that maybe people can ask too, because I kind of got lucky too, because I got names from, you know, all of you guys. I didn't really have to do my own. Like if I started from (laughs) zero and like didn't know anybody, like that would be really hard. But I think it's important to know that not just anybody, like you said, not just anybody should, should, or could do your excision surgery. Exactly. Like, you know, like, um, OB-GYNs like do get trained in doing laparoscopic surgery, um, for endometriosis, but it, it's, um, it's, it could get, you know, and, and for some people, yes, if it's very straightforward, you know, yes, like it, they can do it, but it's just, you never know what you're going to find inside there. Right. And like, you know, it can, and it can really be, it can be so widespread and invasive. It can travel to like up to your diaphragm, up to your lung, you know? So like you need someone who just only does the surgery really to do this. Um, so yes, absolutely. So no, I was gonna say, I, I wish I don't really have like specific resources that I know of that are good. Like, you know, like, yeah, go to this website and they have like, um, so, but I, yeah, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of people on like social media who, um, do have those resources. <laughs> yeah. And I'll not. put some, I'll put some in the show notes too, but for like, for, for me, when I, Cause I didn't know what to expect either until I started looking at all these different accounts that talked about endometriosis. So for the excision right. surgery or removal surgery, you know, my surgeon looked at my diaphragm, looked at my liver, looked at my appendix. He found lesions like in, like on my iliac artery. He found lesions on my ureter. He found lesions yeah. on my bladder. Like they go toward your rectum underneath your uterus they look at your ovaries and then it's not always those dark spots either sometimes it's 
the scar tissue, the the adhesions that form. Exactly. And so it's not super straightforward, which is why you want someone who does this all the time. So they know because they like lift organs and look underneath organs for these endometriosis lesions. So I think that's another thing to kind of bring up is that like sometimes your generalist OBGYN may not go to that depth to look for these lesions and then remove them. So it's important to say that like you got to look everywhere for them. And exactly, yeah. Yeah. Like they were on my ovary. They were like on the underside of my uterus. And I had like all this weird scar tissue looking stuff that was like everywhere else. And it's like, it's, it's just like, yeah, you just have to be careful who you choose for. Cause a lot of times to these insurance plans, and this is why I'm saying this too, (laughs) cause I have an HMO. And for those who don't know, you can only go see certain people with an HMO. And so I wanted to go see a specialist in the Bay area, same thing. Um, who specialized in this. And my insurance company said, no, because there are people within your group in your area who could do it. I'm like, no. <laughs> of course. Of course yeah. they did. Yep. Yes. And so they're like denied. No. And I'm like, well, I'm not doing it here. Because <laughs> like, I want someone who does this all day, every day. Exactly. And, and who yep. really understands. And especially if you're like, working on my iliac artery (laughs) if you're trying to peel this like small lesion off Mm -hmm. a an important vessel like i want you to be doing this a lot and so uh, long 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 version of know that you and you can find ways by you can look at people's um biographies and see that they have a fellowship in minimally invasive surgery. And then specifically, um, the surgeon that I went to trained with a particular specialist, a pioneer in this area and was fellowship trained in minimally invasive surgery, but also specifically with the specialist who did endometriosis all day, every day. So like, I felt pretty comfortable with that, or I felt more comfortable with that than say your generalist. So I mean, I mean, read the bios and really, you know, when you go to your consultations, ask these questions if they will what's their plan when they look for these lesions are they planning to look at your diaphragm are they planning to look you know higher up are they going to look at your appendix are they going to check under your organs and things like that to make sure that they're looking for all these lesions so that's number one and number two let's talk about recovery um you're kind of a stud (laughs) and (laughs) you like required zero recovery but i kind of just wanted to talk about it too because i don't know that there's a lot out there too about what recovery after laparoscopic surgery is like. So what was recovery like for you? Yeah. Uh, I, I think I got, I mean, I, I think I got, I was probably on the f- a faster side yes. of people. So where for me, for me, you know, I, um, I had the surgery on a Thursday. I went back to work on a Monday and I would say like the first 24 hours, um, were pretty, they were really hard. I had a lot of pain, but also I was being a I, in hindsight, I wish I had taken, I was only taking like, you know, over the counter. Um, like, I think I was just taking like ibuprofen, um, in hindsight, you know, because the doctor does give you a prescription for the narcotics. And I, in hindsight, I should have taken some of that, um, because it wasn't, it wasn't necessary to suffer through that pain. You know, I mean, of course, less you want to be careful with narcotics always and the side effects are constipation was very real. Right. But, you know, if I had taken one or two, probably wouldn't have, 
you know, caused me too much harm. So, um, but, but yeah, I would say like first 24 hours, very painful. And then I was just kind of moving around very slowly for a few days. Um, but then I, I you know, but I, know I, I flew back on a Saturday, um, cause we, you know, flew up to the Bay area to have the surgery done. So I flew back on Saturday, I think. And then, you know, I was able to go back to work on Monday and you know, obviously my work is not like involve any physical, you know, like, uh, it's not physically demanding. So, um, so I felt like it was fine. You know, I was, I felt perfectly fine to go back to work that soon. Um, but the only thing that happened for me, and I, I do think this is unusual, so I don't necessarily want this to be a reason for people to not get surgery. Um, but I had like, like about a month or starting like a month or two after the surgery, um, my, my, my endometriosis. So my, my symptoms were previously just like really severe menstrual cramps and they would, they, you know, when I was younger, it was just cycle day one. And then when I got older, they spread out to cycle day one to three and then like a little bit before and a little bit after. Right. So, um, but then like after the surgery, I developed like, um, new symptoms, like other, like other aches and pains and like there's more bladder and bowel, like discomfort. Um, and that would last for like about two weeks now instead of just the first few days. And so basically it would last for my, um, the first half of my cycle and then I'd ovulate and then I feel better. Um, but this is something, so, I mean, yes, I'm sharing this because like, yes, obviously it can happen because it happened to me, but, um, but I also think, you know, I think that was a little bit of an unusual response and I don't really know exactly what happened. Um, you know, I talked to the surgeon and he doesn't really know what happened either. You know, I don't think it was something that he did wrong. Um, he, you know, it was, it's too soon to have like endometriosis can grow back. So a lot of people, endometriosis symptoms get better after surgery. So it's often like a treatment for the symptoms. For me, I did the surgery just because I wanted to do everything we could to optimize, you know, um, uh, outcomes for IVF. You know, I was like living, I was managing and living with my symptoms. Obviously I was hoping that they would get better. Um, but for me, like, unfortunately they got worse and, you know, it, that, that like one to two months after surgery would be too soon for like an endometriosis, like lesion to grow back and cause pain, you know? So, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like my, my theory is that maybe, you know, I wasn't very active after the surgery cause I was recovering. And then I also like, and because I wasn't very active, I also threw my back out for the first time. I already have like kind of a week back, but I threw my back out. So then I was like further, like further along, more like less active, um, so I wonder if like being less active and like, you know, being less active means like, you know, like I'm not moving as much. So my circulation is like moving, but not as much as it could be. Right. And so I wonder if that was a factor. And then like maybe the all the like when everything was removed, maybe it just created like a big like some sort of inflammatory response, you know, because like having endometriosis. I mean, I think we one of the things we understand about endometriosis is that your you know, inflammation is a big factor and your body does not really process or inflammation like the way you know ideally it should right so I, I wonder if like maybe the surgery just like kind of you know things were being removed and things were being released and maybe that just kind of created some like some inflammatory response that my body didn't like so that's my theory nothing I have nothing to prove it you know there's not like st uh, no studies that back up what I think happened but but yeah so that's what happened for me so you know uh, so for me it was like okay I'm I'm never going to do the surgery again um because of what happened um and like fortunately um you know, I don't like my, I don't, none of my doctors have told me, like I, it has been reckoned to me, recommended to me to get the surgery again. Cause there were some like immune, I worked with a reproductive immunologist and they did some immune testing that showed maybe there were some signs that maybe the endometriosis had grown back. And this was maybe like two years after the surgery, they were starting to see this. Um, so they did talk about, okay, maybe you should get the surgery again. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, 
if anybody had told me get the surgery and you will be able to have a healthy pregnancy for sure. Right. Then, yes, I would probably do it. But obviously nobody can guarantee that. So to me, like the risks were too high of having like more negative outcomes. So versus like the benefits, you know, I I wasn't sure what the benefits would be. You know, there wasn't clear to me. So so I never did the surgery again. But that's another thing. Unfortunately, some people when they do um, when they have, you know, endometriosis, they have because it'll grow back you know, they, they will have to repeat the surgeries or, or other people, you know, they don't go to the right surgeon and they don't have an ideal surgery and then they have to repeat it. So it's a, it's a, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. It's a really difficult condition. And I, so my, uh, surgery was like at the time of this recording, like two and a half weeks, three weeks ago, actually it was three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And so the, everybody warned me about bloating. Everyone warned me about gas pain. Everyone warned me about constipation. (laughs) So those are the things I'm like, okay, they're like, start gas X ASAP. So I did. So fortunately I didn't really have like that terrible gas pain. I was bloated. I was super bloated, but I didn't have, and I have the pictures up on my Instagram if people want to see it, (laughs) but like I, I wasn't, I didn't have the shoulder pain. I didn't have like that. Mm. Um, I was definitely sore that day, but I, I remember waking up from anesthesia and like yelling (laughs) because I just remember thinking it hurt. And I remember thinking like, oh, this hurts, this hurts, this hurts. And then so they gave me medication. And because for me, it was a two hour drive home. My fear was that this pain would come back on the road and I would have nothing to remedy it. And so they did um, a block for me. And then before I left and then they did, um, they gave me, um, uh, one oxycodone before I left. And then while I was in recovery, they gave me Dilaudid and an oxycodone. <laughs> so like nice that first, yeah, that first probably like eight hours, I was like medicated to the gills <laughs> because I was like, I have a two hour drive. And during that two hour yeah, drive, yeah. I do not want to be stuck in traffic in pain. Like I was just like, that was my biggest yeah, worry. I'm like, yeah. I'll figure it out when I get home. Yeah, I have medication exactly. at home. I have heating pads. I'm like, I'm not worried about it when I get home, but on the drive home was my worry. So I, like I said, was medicated to the gills. And, um, that evening I was sore. I, t- they gave me gabapentin, ibuprofen, Tylenol to take for, I think like seven days or something together. They also gave me narcotics. So same thing. They gave me narcotics also. And I did the same thing you did. I didn't take the narcotics because I was really worried about the (laughs) constipation because everyone was warning me about the constipation. And so I was like, you know what? I think it's going to be fine. So I I didn't take any of that. I just stuck to the gabapentin, the um, uh, Tylenol and the ibuprofen. And then, you know, the bloating kind of over, I would say maybe like five to seven days improved. And then I would say probably about two weeks, it started to be a lot better. But then starting at around two weeks in the kind of early evenings, afternoons, I started to get like cramping um, towards the end of the day. And I don't know if it's just because you end up walking around more, doing more, and then maybe you feel it more. So I'm not sure either. And that's the thing, right? So when you have these surgeries, like they don't tell you what to expect afterwards either. They're like, look out for bleeding, look out for these things. But physically, like we don't really know like how we're supposed to feel, how much cramping or if there's supposed to be cramping or whatever. I don't know. Did your surgeon tell you? I think, um, so I don't, I don't remember. I think they did warn me about the gas pain. 
the, from the, you know, because they have to like inflate you right for the laparoscopic surgery. Um, and it, you know, it's in your shoulder, which is like, so I did experience that. It was very real. I mean, it, I don't remember it being intolerable, but that was definitely was like, whoa, that's like real pain. And it really is in your shoulder. And that's like not a pain I've ever experienced before. Um, so I think I did have like a heads up that that might happen in terms of bloating and cramping. You know, I think I did, you know, to be honest, like, I don't know. I don't know if it's like, because like, cause my menstrual cramps are like, they're severe, right? Like if I did not take, I have to, just to get them where I can like function, I have to take like a lot of like over the counter, you know, uh, medications, but, but and like at very high doses though. But so to me, like, I don't remember the cramping cause like, yeah. Cause to me, like, I don't think it was my, my cramps are probably 10. If I didn't take anything, they'd be 10 out of 10. Like I'd have to go to the hospital every time if I didn't take anything. So I think like, I think, um, the cramping I had after the surgery is probably not, not really significant compared to my normal menstrual cramps and then bloating too. Same for me. I am part of my endometriosis symptoms is that my gut microbiome are not great. So I actually always have bloating. So there's, um, so again, like, I don't know if I, 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 I had significant bloating after because I always have bloating. So, yeah. And so my symptoms <clears throat> are not like yours because I'm not like 10 out of 10 in the emergency room with my cramping. Um, but they are enough to distract me, like enough where I'm at work and it'll stop me where I might have a hard time focusing on what I'm doing because the cramping is like so distracting, but I'm not on the ground crying, having to go to the emergency room. You know what I mean? Right. But I think this shows the spectrum of endometriosis is that you can still yeah, have yeah. severe endometriosis like I did, but function pretty okay. Um, and then you can have severe endometriosis like you and have, you know, significant pain. Right. Um, exactly. and, and that's what makes it so hard. Is- uh, no, absolutely. I mean, there's even, um, I mean, if you talk to the RIs, right, who like really like the reproductive immunologists who really like specialize in like endometriosis, I mean, they, I mean, I think they think almost everybody has endometriosis, not everybody, but I think that, I think they think a lot of people do have endometriosis and they, and, and they are seeing like, you know, people that have like what they call like silent endo, right, where like you have no symptoms at all. Um, but then they, you know, but, but, you know, because they see an RI and because like, you know, IVF treatments are not working, they're like, you know what, let's, let's just go in and see what we find. And they find it and they've, you know, and they find a lot of it, unfortunately, you know, so, um, so that, yeah, so there's that too. Then there's the, you know, there's the people that have no symptoms at all. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's super hard. And cause I'm like somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I'm not zero, but I'm not yeah. like 10 out of 10. I'm somewhere in the middle, yeah. but with the, my weird hysteroscopy and then my infertility, it kind of put yeah. it all together. You know, yeah. the puzzle pieces started right. to fall into place. And they're like, ah, oh, maybe. Yeah. And then, you know, sure enough, when they went in there, it was like, oh, yeah, you do. But I mean, it's it's really tough for that reason because there's this spectrum of presentation, meaning what symptoms you exactly. have and everything and yeah. what they actually find and diagnosis. But so, okay, so you did the surgery and he, Ray did his surgery. Um, what happened after you guys did your surgeries? So we, we did, um, we did do, uh, we did do a couple of IUIs cause my doctor was really hoping, you know, he just like had, he just suspected that like my body, my ovaries were, were just not a fan of the stims. And so he was hoping that IUI would, you know, would, would work for us. So we did, I think we did like two or three of them, not a lot, but we did do, I don't remember. Yeah, we did like two, we did like two or three of them. Um, and then we moved on to IVF and then, you know, so he did, um, so he did, uh, so we ended up doing, um, 
like probably we worked with him from 2015 no sorry 2016 to like 2020 um 2021 and we did you know i don't know like another like six or seven egg retrievals with him and then we did about i don't know like i think we did six of our transfers with him too um and so for him he um it took it did take some so okay like he, I think, well, I'm sorry, let me pull up my, we did, a, we, I've done so many different protocols. So my first doctor, she, she had me do, um, I don't know the details of what these protocols mean. So I'm just, but, um, but the, I, she had me do an antagonist protocol and then he had me do my first two cycles with him. We also did an antagonist protocol, but there was like, you know, he made some adjustments though. Right. But it was like roughly like an antagonist protocol. Um, and then Basically, with those two cycles I did with him, we weren't really great. We weren't really getting great outcomes. Um, Meaning, so, like no blasts, or what does yeah, that mean? Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good question. Um, so basically, we would get like so those two cycles. We got um, by day three, we would have we had three and four. So one cycle we had four, one cycle we had three um, embryos, and they were all like they ranged from like three cell to seven cell, so eight cell or higher by day. Uh, three is is considered a good embryo, right? And then the lab has their own grading system, and basically they labeled them as being like fair or poor quality, right? And so my my REI his um his policy for me, I don't know if this is for everybody, but his policy or his like approach for me was that he wanted to see at least three embryos by day three that were eight cells or higher and also considered good quality. Um, and I never, because I never had that, he always froze everything at day three. And how old were you at this point? I was at 37 at this point. Yeah. So I did. Um, so yeah, so we did like the first two cycles. So my first two IVF egg retrieval cycles with him, we did like a, the antagonist like protocol. We froze at day three because I never, everything was like, you know, yeah, like I mentioned, three to three to seven cells and the the lab labeled them as fair or poor quality. He still, they, we still froze them all, but you know, we, um, even the ones that were only, there was like a three cell, we still froze, even though, you know, probably weren't going to use it. Um, and we never used it, but, um, but yeah. And then, but the thing is, okay. But then like the next cycle, so my third cycle with him, um, he switched to a, let me see, he switched to a long agonist protocol. And so I ended up doing four of these with him. Um, I did. And like, Yes. So that seemed to make a difference where we started getting more um, like we started getting eight cell day threes. Um, we had, we were, I was making, I was also making more like embryos. So like we got, um, so like the, so let's see. Okay. So this cycle, so the first, like the first of the, um, the first of the long agonist protocol that we did with him, you know, I went from getting like just three or four embryos, right. To like, we got eight embryos. Um, day three still, but there, and he's still, even though there was eight uh, of them, like, and a few of them were eight, a couple of them were eight cells. They were all like labeled as like poor or, or fair quality. And most of them were actually like half of them were like eight cells or higher, but the other half were eight cells were like seven cells or lower. So because even though I had eight frozen, you know, he didn't, it, it didn't meet his like criteria, which is the three, you know, eight cells, good quality. So Still freezing at day three um, with these protocols, but at least I was making more. And now we were seeing some more eight cell embryos. Um, so we did, we did, we, you know, so we did a couple of those. Um, 
we did a couple more of those cycles in like 2017. So, and then, and then we started, and then we started in 2018. That's when we started um, transferring for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, so those were not, um, you didn't uh, genetically test them, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. When they're day three, when you freeze at day three, you can't test. So then you, you're moving forward with transfers. You ended up doing four, five retrievals total. Uh, at that point, yes. Yeah. And by 2018, we had done five retrievals, one with the first doctor, four with the second. Yeah. And then I went ahead and consulted the reproductive immunologist um, at that point, yeah, before we did the transfer, because I just, and this was just, um, I think, you know, I think at that point I had joined a Facebook group for physicians who were doing IVF, um, which was super valuable for me. And so I think that's when I started hearing about RRI, the reproductive immunology as a specialty. Um, and I, and I thought, you know, well, I, at this point we had had the surgery. We saw that I had stage four endometriosis and, you know, I had endometriosis everywhere. Like I, you know, I don't want to, um, and you typically people will consult RIs when they've had like recurrent, you know, failed transfers or recurrent pregnancy loss. But I was like, I'm, I was like, I don't want to, like, I've, you know, I've already like, I've already done five retrievals. I don't have like, I only have day three embryos to transfer. Right. I had, I had a, I had enough of them to do a few transfers, but I was like, you know, I don't want to waste my embryos on like, you know, a transfer for me without making sure we have RI on board. You know, so I consulted RI so that they could help manage. Um, the RI was more like, to me, it was more about getting the RA on board for like um, helping us with the transfer and seeing if there's any like immune medications they wanted to put me on to help like maybe, you know, um, make the endometriosis like less because endometriosis can like you know, interfere with like implantation and like, you know, supporting a um, embryo. So, you know, I thought, OK, it'd be worth it to, you know, get uh, see if there's any medications and testing that they have that might help like improve our chances. Right. So. Um, and then we, yeah. And then we like went on and started doing our transfers. Mm-hmm. Keep um, going. <laughs> and so we did, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we did, we ended up doing uh, four transfers for me. Um, this is like three of them were in 2018 and then one of them was in 2019. And for, um, and these were all with like under the management of a reproductive immunologist, right? So they added on a bunch of medications. So what did they add on? Can you talk about that? Like, can you talk about the testing you did with the reproductive immunologist and then what the outcome was? Yeah. So the testing, to be fair, is I don't, I never tried to learn about RI testing because it, um, cause like this RI had, he would definitely work, he worked with like a specialty company. So it's not labs that you could do through Quest, you know, or through LabCorp. Um, and um, so I don't really, I, so I don't know enough to really comment on what he was doing there. Um, and then, and then, um, and then the medications, you know, so my, um, he put me on metformin, by the way, metformin, I I do want to comment on, I think metformin really had a big impact on my egg retrieval outcomes. If I had to like, if I had to name the things that helped me the most with having better outcomes, it would be like, one would be finding the right protocol. And two was probably the metformin. Um, I mean, it's so hard for me to really say what made the difference for me because I was always doing my own biohacking and so much other stuff. Right. But I think if I had to like, if we want to focus on the medications and like that kind of intervention, I think finding the right protocol, you know, made a difference for me. Um, and then the second thing would be that, um, metformin seemed to make a difference for me and metformin, you know, commonly used with PCOS patients and, 
I think um, I don't know if REIs are using metformin with endometriosis patients, but I, but the the RIs are using um, metformin. You know, so so it's a diabetes medication. I I think the way it works is so with PCOS, you know, it, it does work on the insulin resistance factor, and you know, insulin and sugars and like all that stuff is not great for egg quality, right? So PCOS, I think that's like the mechanism there for endometriosis. You know, I think there is still like a you know, insulin, you know, sugar, like component, even though it, um, it may not reflect in like your, you know, if you do like a fasting blood sugar, it may not reflect there. But, um, so I think that that is, but I I also think it has some like anti-inflammatory properties too, that seems to work well with endometriosis. Um, so I, you know, so I think like my, my egg quality did seem, or our embryo quality rather, um, did seem to improve after I started the, after I started the metformin. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so those are like, um, but yeah, so for my, but for my transfers, um, so my, my RI, my REI already was on board with like, like he probably would have put me on some of these medications anyway. Um, so my REI would have put me on, um, aspirin. Uh, like a baby aspirin. Um, he also would have put me on prednisone, um, but maybe a different dosing. I think he might've recommended just prednisone, like a lower dose for me versus like my RI recommended a higher dose for me. Um, my REI also reckon, would have would have been on board at Lovenox, but I think also a lower dose versus the RI did a higher dose. And then both REI and RI agreed with like doing Claritin. Um, and for me, and then also um, IV intralipids. Um, I think both of them were, were in agreement with that too. So, I mean, I guess in the end, like my RI was more just like he had increased the doses for these medications for my transfers. And then there was, um, another medication they ended up adding on later. Um, like after the first transfer, um, I continued doing like immune labs. Um, so the first transfer, we, we, we did have a positive pregnancy test and then we miscarried at seven weeks. And I think every week or every two weeks I was doing immune labs and like um, having the RI take a look at it. And so I think with like the sometime during the pre- like early, you know, the pregnancy was only six weeks. So like I think with one of my initial labs after the positive pregnancy test, he he saw something that was related to T cells. And I and again, I don't know what lab it was that he used, but there's something about T cells. And so he he actually um, recommended I uh, take Neupogen. Um, and Neupogen is a medication that usually used in like chemothera- chemotherapy and patients that are, are, it's usually used with patients that have, um, I forget it, like stimulates like the white blood cells. It's simu- yeah, I think it stimulates your white blood cells. Um, but s- some reason it seems to help with, um, he thought it would help with, uh, you know, the immune system and, and like pregnancy and endometriosis. So, so yeah, so those are the medications that, that I've worked with a couple of RIs. So that was, those are the medications that that RI recommended for my transfers. Um, but we did, you know, so we did three transfers. Um, first one, uh, pregnant, but then miscarried at seven weeks. The second one didn't, uh, oh, sorry. I also did, um, Lupron, uh, depot for like two to two to three months before each transfer. Did you know you had adenomyosis at this point or? I did. Yeah. Yeah. They saw it in my, um, so that, that was diagnosed during my, after, during my laparoscopic surgery, but you know, oh, obviously, okay. like, you know, they can't, they can't, the only, yes. the only real treatment is to remove your uterus. And obviously yes. I didn't kind of need it. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so that, that came up. Yeah. So like before, going into our first transfer, we already knew that adenomyosis was a, was a concern. And that was something, you know, my, my, uh, the Lupron Depot was also something my REI recommended too. 
you know, so like, cause you could, and you could also see the, um, I, it sounds, it seemed like he could, you could see the, um, xenomyosis in my ultrasounds. So, so he would put me on Lupron Depot. I would be on it for two to three months. He'd have me come in for an ultrasound and just look at, and, you know, and just evaluate the adenomyosis and ultrasound. And, you know, typically after like, you know, three months or so, it seemed like it was like, it had, you know, it was like thinner. Um, and it, it wasn't like quite as bulky as, <laughs> as it was before. And so that's when he would decide, okay, let's, let's start like planning for a transfer. Um, so I did, um, so yeah, the first transfer did Lupron Depot for two, three months. I did all, and I did all the immune meds that I just described. Um, and then, you know, positive pregnancy tests, but then miscarried at seven weeks. Um, we did do, because they were untested embryos, um, that we were working with, right? Day threes. Um, oh, uh, sorry, just another thing I should mention. So because we work with day three embryos, though, we also transferred more. So, you know, typically if you have like a day five blast or you have a euploid blast, right, you're only transferring one, maybe two, right, embryos at a time. Um, just because, you know, the confidence that they're going to, one of them is going to be a healthy embryo and implant is like, you know, high. And, you know, the goal is not to get multiples. The goal is to have one, you know, healthy pregnancy at a time. But um, my, my doctor, my Ari, I had this whole algorithm, whether it was based on like my age or based on your age, based on the fact that it was day three, and then also based on the quality of that embryo, um, how many embryos you would, you would implant each time. And so his algorithm, you know, recommended I, I do four. Um, so that's like not common. You know, I don't think like, um, I think there are some are like, there are like every REI I think has their own like comfort level. Cause like, you know, obviously we want to avoid multiples, but so I know that there are some are, are like some of the I know that there's an REI in like Texas who does day three transfers, but he'll only do two at a time, you know? Um, so, you know, but then my, my, that REI, my second REI, he was comfortable with doing four for me, you know? So, um, and then my third REI was only comfortable with three, you know? So, um, so I get it, you know, everyone like there, that's a good reason why they have their own, like, you know, reasons for why they only want to transfer two or three or four. Um, but for me, you know, my REI was like comfortable with four. He recommended four. So we always did four, at a time for me. Um, but you know, with the goal that just one would implant, you know, so, um, Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just going to take a quick break. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I know infertility is a stressful time and we often don't provide ourselves with enough self-care. One way to give ourselves a little more self-care is with Pranamat's acupressure mats. This is what you can do. Give yourself about 20 minutes to lie down. And within those 20 minutes, this is what you're going to experience. There's going to be an increase in blood flow, a surge of endorphins, relief of muscular tension, and finally a euphoric calm of the mind and body. So if you're due for some unwinding after a long day, go to pranamat.com and check out their different massage mat sets. Because the 40 and Infertile Podcast is a Pranamat affiliate, 40 and Infertile Podcast listeners get a special offer by using the code 40 and infertile. That's the number four, the number zero, and A-N-D, infertile, I-N-F-E-R-T-I-L-E, all one word. And now back to our episode. So yeah, so my first transfer, we transferred four. And then um, actually, so then we got with two, we had two heartbeats. 
And then, you know, and then like a week or two later, we, we had no heartbeats. And then, you know, because we were, you know, um, we opted to do a DNC so that we could test the products of conception, right? The, the embryos basically, um, and figure out, you know, like just to give us more data on like what, you know, what went wrong, right? What, what caused the miscarriage. And so with that first, um, so with that first DNC, uh, DNC with the testing, we found that we did have two, Actually, oh yeah, sorry, I'm looking at my notes now. Actually, we, okay, so we actually had four of the four embryos, actually three implanted, but then we had two heartbeats and then, and then we, and then miss, and then no heartbeats at seven weeks. We did the DNC and the testing showed that there was two normal uh, male embryos and then there was one abnormal female. So, you know, so, you know, to, so that, that was helpful, right? To like, determine, okay, you know, like it's less likely that we miscarried because it was abnormal embryos and, you know, maybe it was more likely something with like my adenomyosis or endometriosis or something, right? That even though I was on all these immune medications, maybe something was still like contributing to like me not being able to support, you know, the embryos um, past seven weeks. So then we did another, um, then we did another transfer. And this, this time we only did one month of Lupron because it seemed like that wasn't, you know, he, he had me come in and like everything looked good. So we went ahead and did another transfer. This one didn't take, um, this one, we did three embryos. We transferred three, um, instead of four. I think the only reason why, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember why we only did three, but you know, I mean, I think his goal was always to do three or four. So this one, we just happened to do three. Um, and then we did a third transfer, um, with the third transfer, we didn't do Lupron Depot ahead of time because we had just come from, you know, because, um, because like everything looked, you know, there was no, like, I think my adenomyosis had not had time to like grow back and become inflamed again. So we'd end up not doing the, the Lupron Depot again. Um, so the third transfer, we, we transferred four. Um, and this time we had one implant, we had one heartbeat. And then again, around seven weeks, no heartbeat. Did another DNC, did, did more genetics testing for the, the products of conception after the DNC. And we did have one, another like one normal female, you know, so you know, at this point, after three transfers with like two of them having like normal euploid embryos, right? My REI was like, you know, I don't, you know, you're, I don't think it's an embryo quality issue because we're getting, you know, we're finding out that these embryos are normal. Um, I don't think it's like, he was like, maybe it is like an adenomyosis, endometriosis issue, right? But I don't know what else to do. Like you're already on you're on all the medications that I would give you, you know, and you're also working with the REI and you're doing his medications too. So like, I don't know, you know, what else, what else we can do. So that, at that point he was like, okay, let's, you know, I really think we should work with it. You know, you should look for like, you know, working with a gestational carrier and doing a transfer with them. Um, but I consulted my RI, you know, I was like, oh, you know, always consulting them after, you know, like, so this is like our, you know, WTF appointment to see what else we can do. And the, my RI recommended like a different protocol that we hadn't tried before. Um, and to me, it made sense. Um, and so I thought, you know what, like, let's try, let's try one more transfer for me. And if it doesn't work, we'll move on to a gestational carrier. So I talked to my REI and he was, you know, he didn't necessarily like agree with the plan or agree with like the protocol, but he was like, you know what, like, if you want to try it, like, you know, let's do it. So, um, so we did another transfer, the fourth transfer with, um, you know, for myself and then with, and with that one, it, um, it didn't, um, it didn't implant, you know, so, so then after that transfer, we decided to move on to, um, working with the gestational carrier. We, with that protocol, we did, um, we didn't do any Lupron Depot, um, ahead of time. 
And the reason for that was because we wanted to like use my own like estrogen. So for the first three transfers, we were doing the, like the, the exogenous estrogen, right? So we were doing like estradiol patches. Um, and my RI thought that like adding extra estrogen um, would just like, it's just really bad for endometriosis and would just like an, an adenomyosis and would just flare everything up. And he thought that as a possibility that maybe these miscarriages were happening due to progesterone resistance. Um, and so meaning like I'd have to increase my progesterone. And then also maybe the fact that I added the extra, you know, added this like outside exogenous, you know, um, estradiol was also just inflaming everything so that my body wasn't able to, you know, support these embryos after seven weeks. It was just, you know, so, so that was his theory. And so his recommendation was that I try a transfer with, um, no Lupron Depot ahead of time, no like estradiol, just use my own, my own estrogen that I make naturally and also add in letrozole for a few days before the transfer. Um, so that was the difference, um, with that protocol compared to the other transfer protocols. Um, you know, but I ended up not implanting, and so, you know, it didn't work. So we moved on. But I, I kind of wonder, thinking back on this now, because um, I've talked to another REI since then um, to see, like, what kind of transfer protocol would be good for me. Um, I did this after our, <laughs> after our, like, we had a miscarriage with our second gestational carrier a year ago. And because, like, um, I wasn't sure if she would want to, you know, try again with us. Um, this was her first transfer with us and ended up in a, and then ended up being in a, like a 19 week miscarriage due to twin twin transfusion syndrome. Um, so, you know, she qualified to, she potentially would have qualified for transferring again because it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't, it was just a structural issue, not her fault, you know, not like related to her body at all in terms of why we had the, um, the miscarriage. So, but I wasn't sure if she'd want to continue. And also like her, she like, we had, she had some like high blood pressure readings, um, during that pregnancy. So I wasn't sure if she would be like cleared, you know, for another transfer. So, um, and you know, especially with the pandemic, um, finding a new gestational carrier takes a lot longer. And then even once you match, it takes like another six months potentially to like, when you match to like go through legal, go through medical clearance and then get to transfer. Right. So, um, in that time I went and consulted, um, our, my second RI, to see like, okay, you know, if I was to try a transfer for me in that time, you know, what would we do? And, um, so talking to her, I, I, you know, it got me think like her recommendation was to, um, was that I, I needed the Lupron Depot to like, calm, you know, get my adenomyosis to like calm down a little bit, um, to implant. But then I also needed to not do any outside estrogen. Yeah. So basically, you know, she had recommended a protocol to me where it was, um, you know, do the Lupron Depot. Um, and so, and then, and then, but then don't add any estrogen and then add extra progesterone. And so I, and so I, I, you know, and I ended up not doing that protocol because, um, because our transfer, our second transfer with our second gestational carrier worked, it worked and we got, and we're having twins. Right. So I was like, okay, we're good. We, we don't need to try a transfer for me anymore, but, um, but yeah, but you know, it, to me, it made sense. Cause I, I never like, I, to me, it makes sense that I would need the Lupron Depot or some, or, um, or, uh, or Lissa. That's, that's the other medication, um, that she, she actually recommended or Lissa, not Lupron for me. Um, so, but they, they work very similarly. So, you know, so, you know, same idea or Lissa and Lupron are similar. Uh, Lupron is just that you do it once a month and then you, it's in your system. It's like in your system for a whole month or Lissa you take daily so you could stop it. And then, you know, the next, and then you, you know, 
So like you can come off of it more quickly with Orlissa compared to Lupron. For Lupron, you have to wait a whole month before you're like, you would start to cycle normally again uh, versus Orlissa. You can cycle normally a lot more quickly, but um, anyway, so yeah, but to me, it made sense that like for me, you know, with my like pretty significant adenomyosis that I needed something to, you know, kind of reduce some of that inflammation before, in order to implant. Right. But then I, it also made sense to me that like adding outside estrogen would also flare things up. So it's better to try to use your own estrogen if you can. And then progesterone, I think, you know, like I think people with endometriosis and adenomyosis and any like any like um, any menstrual cycle disorder, I do think that progesterone is always an issue, you know, whether you're not making enough or you're having or your body has some like progesterone resistance. Um, so, you know, adding extra progesterone for someone that is doing IVF or, you know, also makes sense to me. So, and I, I never tried that combination, you know, whereas like Lupron or Alyssa plus no estrogen plus extra progesterone. Right. So, so to me that, you know, that would, that made sense for me, like, you know, so if like, if we had had delays with our gestational carrier transfer, I would have tried this, you know, but you know, we didn't. So. Yeah. So let's kind of back up a little bit to the gestational carrier. So um, what, what were your thoughts and how did you feel about needing a gestational carrier? Cause I mean, there's like so many different emotions that just go through like with failed egg retrievals and stuff like that. And then, you know, there's also a lot that goes into carrying a pregnancy for women. Like some, some women like dream about doing this and then, you know, when they're told that they can't. So what were your thoughts around, you know, needing a gestational carrier? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think it was, uh, uh, it was something to grieve, right. To, um, to, to know that I wasn't going to be the one carrying, um, you know, I think that like every, um, every like year that we kept trying to conceive and every year that we kept doing IVF, you know, just like, like the way that my husband and I imagined that we would be growing our family just kept changing. Right. So I think adding on the gestational carrier piece was like, okay, this is another thing we have to, you know, it, it just, it just keeps like, you know, changing and becoming more and more different from what we thought we would be doing. Right. So I think there was definitely like a period of time where I had to like grieve that, you know, to me it was another loss to grieve, you know, and you know, obviously like, it's triggering some emotions for me now. So there's still, you know, there's still some sadness around that. Um, and I think, uh, I think the other, so I think that was like a loss for me. Um, just the fact that, you know, now we had to go in a totally different direction. Right. Um, there was always like, you know, um, a lot of people think that IVF works for people and it, does but it doesn't work for everybody right and it doesn't work for everybody in the way that they think they you know like you know people move on to things like donor egg or donor sperm or like you know or gestational carry you know so it's like um so yeah so just the way that you know our like path to you know becoming parents like kept just kept changing and becoming more and more different right so I think that was like a big adjustment a big loss to um to like acknowledge and process and then I think I think the biggest thing for me was um it was more about like, cause for me, you know, like we, you know, we, we know, but it, we all know this, but especially for me, especially with like my background as an integrated physician that like, you know, the, the, um, the environment of like, you know, 
the environment that a, that a baby, a fetus is like develops in, right, has a big impact on like their future health and wellness. And so, you know, so like mom's diet and all the all the things that she does and doesn't do, it does have an impact. Um, and so like, and for me, you know, I, especially as an integrated physician, right, I, I do so much when it comes to my lifestyle. You know, I've got every, you know, I got, I've gotten every, like, there's like diet. There's also like, you know, using like, you know, I'm using stainless steel pots and pans and the cast iron, you know, and like, I try to avoid plastic and, you know, all that stuff, right? My water is filtered, my air is filtered, my, you know, my, you know, so my cleaning, my cleaning products, my beauty products are all like on the cleaner side, you know? So like, um, so, you know, and all these things like potentially, so like there, there was a little bit of like, okay, I have to let go of the fact that like, I can't do that, you know? Um, and whoever, and whoever we work with, you know, like, I mean, I'm super grateful that there, like, there are people that exist that are willing to do this for others, right? So there's like, of course, I, and who, and, um, and, but just, you know, but also, but I mean, it was also important. Oh, and it was important to us also that we worked with someone that was like, they didn't necessarily have to do what I do. Of course, like, I don't expect anyone to do what I do, you know, but, um, but I, I was just hoping that we would like, you know, well, it was important to us to find someone that was open to learning about what, you know, what changes they could make. And like, and they, and I didn't have any expectation that they would do any of it, but just at least be open to learning about it, maybe trying to make some changes, you know, if they, whatever felt like, you know, whatever, like whatever they were comfortable doing, you know? So, so I think that was a big piece was just like, a, like letting go of the fact that, you know, Hey, I'm not going to be the one carrying and, um, and I'm not going to be the one to, you know, like have this like super healthy lifestyle to like support and nurture and grow our baby, you know, but, um, yeah. But, you know, I also recognize that like, as far as we know, I can't carry a pregnancy past seven weeks, you know? So, you know, so like that to me, like, of course, like it doesn't like it. Yes. It's a, I, I think what I do for my own health, you know, in terms of like all the lifestyle, all the like, you know, things I do is great. But if I can't carry a baby past seven weeks, then, you know, it kind of doesn't, <laughs> that stuff doesn't, doesn't really matter. Right. In terms of our goals for having, like having a child, right. So having a healthy pregnancy. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, there was that, there was a, I feel like that was like the biggest piece for me to like really let go of and have like more peace and acceptance around. Um, so I, well, I want to talk about a couple of things with that. So, um, first let's talk about just gestational carry carrier in general. Did you end up going through an agency? Did you go independent? How did you kind of come across? We did. We went, th- we went through an agency. So, um, we went through an agency and this is okay. So this is something that I was nice for me. So like, you know, obviously as a physician and also as a person with the uterus and the ovaries and our, in my relationship with my husband, right. I took the lead for everything, right. As like most of the women in like doing IVF with like a male partner are doing right. Um, but, um, and I was like, that's fine. I'm happy to do it. You know, it made sense. And my husband's super supportive and he did, he helped as much as he could. Right. But ultimately it was all on me. Right. So when it came to working and finding a gestational carrier and finding an agency, I was like, okay, I don't need to do this. I don't need to take the lead. You know, like, you know, like you, I was basically like, here, you do this. Um, so and my husband was happy to do it. So that was nice, you know, to kind of just like not have to be the one to like, you know, like drive that, that process. Um, cause it also felt a little exhausting for us, you know, at least for me, because I felt like, you know, you know, navigating IVF is like, it's complicated and it takes a lot of bandwidth and time and research and effort. Right. And I felt like, okay, I'm like pretty good at navigating this now. And now I got to, you know, to learn how to navigate, like, you know, a gestational carrier process. Like to me, I was like, oh, you know, like that's a lot to do. I don't really want to take that on, you know? So it was nice that my husband was happy and willing to take that on. So, 
Um, but yeah, we ended up working. Um, he looked a little bit in terms of like independent and like there's a lot of Facebook groups and other social media groups for that, you know, but ultimately he landed on like, you know what, like I'd rather just work with the agency. Um, there are a lot, you know, there's a lot of it. There's like, there's pros and cons both ways, right? For us, it felt right to like work with an agency. And then any tips, and I know he did, maybe we should have asked Ray to be here too. <laughs> um, any tips on um, agency, finding the right agency or matching? Like, is there anything that came up for you that was important that you think people should know I, about? I think we, yeah, I think we, you know, just like a lot of things, you know, it was, it was word of mouth. Uh, for some of the referrals. I think he did just some like internet, like, you know, Googling. Um, but I think there was also word of mouth that, yeah. So we ended up, the agency we ended up working with was the one that we um, had, had like a friend of a friend uh, work with. And um, I, I mean, I think it's just like, for us, you know, we just, um, I mean, I think cost of course is always an issue to, it's always something to consider, but I think for us, we, we picked the agency that felt like they really, um, they just seem really on top of it. You know, and I think that they really seem to vet their, um, you know, potential surrogates like really carefully, you know? So I, I think that, um, to us, like that was probably the most important. And then they offered a lot of support, like ongoing. So, and I don't, so I don't remember if this is like all agencies do this, but, um, our agency, like there was a case manager that, you know, works with you during the entire, you know, during your entire journey. And, and then the, the gestational carriers and surrogates are required. I think they're required to meet with a therapist like regularly. Um, so I don't remember if that was like consistent for all of them or if that was more unique to ours, but I think the fact that they really had like a pretty careful process when it came to which, um, you know, which surrogates they were willing to take on with their agency. So I think that, um, that's to me, like, that's probably, and especially having like, you know, at this point now we've worked with two gestational carriers now and um, both of them were amazing and both of them were, were with the same agency. Um, and I've, you know, and now like, and having talked to more people about their own, like, you know, journeys, um, you know, I, I think like, you know, there's like, it seems there's some, there's some like, you know, it sounds like the, some of the things that have come up that have been challenging for other people and their, and their own matches it seems like um, potentially right with an agency that might have done a deeper dive, maybe some of those, pro- you know, some of those challenges would have been ironed out earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as far as matching with your surrogate, can you talk about that process and what that was like? Cause it sounds like that is the most challenging part of any kind of surrogacy process is matching. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we got, I do think we got lucky. Uh, we, we either got lucky or our agency just really, you know, got us and understood what we were looking for. Cause they really only gave us one profile for our first match and that was it. And then our oh. second match, <laughs> I know. And then our second match, they actually, they did give us two profile, two profiles for the second match. Um, but, and then the, and we ended up, but then the, one of them like was in Northern California, I think. And the other one was like, 15 minutes away from us. So, and they both, they both sounded amazing, but it was like, okay, well, you know, the one that's 15 minutes away, like that's, um, uh, the first one was in Texas. And for us, that wasn't really a concern. We were just more about, we wanted to match with the right person and also not have to wait too long. Cause matches unfortunately can take like three to six months, sometimes even longer, you know? So, um, but, uh, yeah, but they, you know, it was very much like, it very much felt like, so my husband and I met, um, 
through online dating. So, and this is like, this is a while ago, you know, so this is before like you were like swiping on your phone, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was like, it was, all, it was all like email at the time. It was like 2009. It was like email based, right? And like web based. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, but it was very much felt like, you know, we created a profile for our, like my husband and I had a profile for us and we answered all of these questions and it very much felt like filling out like a dating profile, you know, and then we had to write, like, we had to write a little essay about ourselves and provide some pictures and then the gestational, the surrogates also, you know, provide the same thing. So it very much felt like a dating, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we, we, um, you know, but I, I think a lot of this is probably, you know, due to like our agency and you know, they, they knew what we were looking for and then, you know, I think they screened very carefully. And so it was like, you know, it, it, you know, the first match happened right away. Cause they, she just happened to be available. The, um, the second match. So the second match happened because the first one, um, we did two transfers with her, but then they didn't take. And then um, her mom got cancer. And so understandably, she wanted to focus on her family, right? Didn't feel like it was right to continue with us. Um, so, you know, so then we, you know, found that. So then we, you know, we ended that and then moved on to um, to finding a second one. But the second one, it, it, I think it still only took us maybe a month or two. And this is already, you know, this is now 2020. This is 2020, right? Yeah, this is 2020 when it happened. So, you know, it was already in the, it was, it was already like, you know, like six months or so into the pandemic or eight months into the pandemic. So, um, so things were already, you know, I think things were starting to slow down and get more challenging with um, surrogates and agencies and matching. And, you know, so, but uh, yeah, we were lucky where like a month or two later, um, they presented us with, you know, like another profile and it, it was our, and then it's our current gestational carrier that we're working with. So, yeah. No, that's so awesome. Because sometimes, like I hear these stories of people who are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting into you know to get yeah. their match, which yeah. is really you know tough. Um, but so yeah. okay, so let's um, let's talk about your current surrogate. <laughs> so were you still doing <laughs> yeah, yeah. those like multiple transfer, like multiple embryos? Were you transferring multiple embryos? We were, okay. yeah. Yeah. So let's see. So if the, so after we did the four transfers for me, then we, you know, moved on to working with a gestational carrier and then, um, then we did, right. So the first two transfers with our first, um, surrogate, uh, we, you know, because my, my REI was like, well, my REI actually only suggested we do two, um, day three embryos each time because, you know, his thoughts were like, well, you know, it's not, he, he, he didn't, I guess he didn't feel like we could ask her to do that just yet, you know, or, or, or at the time he felt like, you know, asking her to do three or four might've been too much. So we, the two transfers for her were, were two at a time, day threes. Right. And then, the, but then because, and then she did do, um, after the first one, we did go, we did do an ERA. Um, even though I know those are like limited in terms of how helpful they are, but, um, but we did it. We did find out that I think she was pre-receptive. So we adjusted her progesterone for the second transfer. But then again, it didn't take. So after the second transfer not taking, he thought, you know what, we, we need to go back to doing the like three or four embryos at a time. Like he thought that, you know, one a contributing factor to why those first two transfers failed was probably because, um, you know, because uh, um because we weren't transferring enough. So, so, you know, we were, so we were like, and she was, you know, and like we had, you know, he talked, I think, I believe he talked to her and then our case managers also like kind of talked to her about it. And, you know, um, and the, you know, she, I think she understood like the risks and benefits of doing a day four, like, you know, um, a four, a three or four embryo transfer with, with, with the day three embryos. Um, and she was comfortable with doing it, but then, you know, like I mentioned, um, 
it in, uh, she wanted to focus on her family because of her mom's cancer diagnosis. Her mom's doing okay, by the way. So we're, um, we're, yeah, we're still in touch and she's still very much like part of our team and she's still very much supporting us and rooting for us. So, um, but anyways, yeah. So, um, so we, yeah, so basically like with our, um, with our second gestational carrier, who's the current one, um, we decided, you know, we like, that was definitely part of the conversation before we even like, you know, even like, once we matched before we even move, they move, move further to like legal and medical screening. It, it was definitely like, okay, like, are you comfortable with doing, you know, four embryos at a time? Um, and, and she was, um, so, um, so our first transfer, we did four and then that's, uh, and then one implanted, but then it split. And so we were expecting identical twins, but then because of the way that they had split, you know, they were actually sharing one placenta and so that made them very high risk for um, twin twin transfusion syndrome, which is where like one gets more blood flow and one gets less. Um, and so, you know, we were working with a perinatologist um, and monitoring a little bit more closely. But unfortunately, like at, nine, at our 19 week appointment, you know, like two weeks before they were fine. Two weeks later, they were both gone. Um, so, yeah, that was a that was definitely a pretty devastating loss for us. And so that was a year ago. Um, and then. Um, and then, yeah. And then the, and then, you know, it took, um, it took some time in terms of like us being ready to try again. Right. And then, um, and then also, uh, we ended up, um, and then we also, and then also took, so she had to get like a medically cleared again, um, because it had been a while since her last like medical clearance. And then we ended up, um, so at this point I was already like all my embryos were with, so at this point I also started cycling with a third REI, um, and so all my embryos were with like the other, um, with the third office. And so, you know, she was also getting like medically, so she was also, she was getting medically screened by that office now to do a transfer because the, the first transfer she did was with the second office. And then the second transfer that she did was now with the third office. So, so the third, so the second transfer, um, which is the one that we did at the end of February of 2022. Um, so that's the one that is like our current pregnancy. Um, so, um, and so that one we did do for, uh, also for embryos. Um, no, sorry, we did three, we did three. So we did three day threes. Um, and you know, um, and we were anticipating just one would implant, um, but two implanted. So, mm-hmm. which is and so great. far, you know, that, that, yeah, it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, one is great. Two is great. I mean, you know, we were aiming for one, but we got two and, um, so far everyone, you know, everything's going well. So. But like, you know, going back to like the day three transfer and like, you know, why it seems like it might be the right choice for us. Because, um, you know, there is like, I, I, I definitely understand why, you know, it's not typically done, you know, the risks of a failed transfer or a miscarriage or like another, you know, chromosomal abnormality developing is just so much higher, right? When you work with a day three transfer. Um but, you know, I think uh, our doctors, you know, seem to think that for us, if we had, you know, if we had just tried to do, if we just tried to make blasts and test them, we would probably not have much to work with, you know, transfer wise. Because your, so. um, your egg retrievals were before 40, right? You don't have any... No, I, I do. Um, so let's see the, so the protocol that was working for me at age 37, we, we, we started, we, you know, we started making embryos again, like around like 39. 
Um, so I did like, I think one or two retrievals and at 39, and then I did another one at 40 with the, with the second REI, with the same protocol that had been working for me at 37. And, you know, I was like, I would get like, I would, I was only getting like two or three embryos, um, versus before I was getting like, I don't know, five to eight. Um, yeah. So I was like, you know, so each one I was getting like fewer and fewer embryos and then, the last one I just got, we got nothing that was usable. And so at that point I was like, I'd already, like I'd heard about the like low stim, mini stim protocols. Um, so I was curious, like, okay, maybe this would, you know, this is something that might, um, maybe now's the time to try it. Right. So I switched to a third REI who does do the low stim uh, protocols. Um, and so with him uh, from age 40, so I was working with him from age 40 to 41. Um, and I did like, 10 low stem, mini stem, low stem, mini stem is the same thing. So I did 10 like mini stem protocols with him or cycles with him. And then I did two <laughs> and then I did two like nat, um, like no stem natural cycles with him too. So, yeah. So your total number of retrievals was how many? It's 20, which is a lot, <laughs> but it's also, but I think, uh, like, but I think that the thing to keep in mind is that like, so I think eight of them were more your traditional, you know, STEM protocols. And then 12 of them were you know, either low STEM, mostly low STEM. And then two of them, you know, 10 were low STEM, two were natural. So, so I think that's, you know, um, that's the, that I think when you're doing low STEM, you also have to be okay with that. You're probably going to do more. Um, but, but cost you know, wise, um, isn't that like, don't you, cause you still have the retrieval per cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this office, um, because they, you know, specialize in like low stem, mini stem, natural cycles, they, they do charge a lot less, uh, per cycle. Um, so yeah, so it's, yeah, it's like, I mean, it's still, it adds up, especially when you're doing it every month. Cause I was doing, I basically spent like, you know, I was doing like the first nine, those first nine cycles I did, like I was doing one, of, I was basically cycling every month, you know? So it was like two weeks. Sims, cycles, appointments, retrieval, then like two weeks off. And then again, you know, so, but so, yeah, I mean, yes, it adds up, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's not the same as what people are paying out of pocket for the, their like, you know, traditional cycles at like a, you know, typical IVF office. So, cause I was thinking about that. Cause I was thinking cost wise, the retrieval is probably going to cost the same, right? Cause you have to pay for anesthesia, the facility. Oh yeah. Good question. So you, yes, but, um, yeah, you do, but uh, like you have the option of not doing them under anesthesia at this office, which is unusual. Most offices don't offer this, but this office you can do them awake. So I opted to do all of mine awake with them. My my other ones with the other doctors were all done under anesthesia. So and they charged, you know, like I think it was like five hundred dollars or something for anesthesia. So, um, but it's also it. I mean, it's also um. Also, but also keep in mind, like when you're doing these like low stim or natural stim protocols, you're only retrieving, you know, a couple of eggs. You know, yeah, or like yeah. I think the most I had was maybe five. You know, so it's so that's very different, right? So um, I mean, it, don't get me wrong, it hurt. Like some people, for some reason, it's not bad, but for me, it was very. I think because of my endometriosis, is that it was actually quite painful, but. Um, but it was, you know, but obviously it was like tolerable without anesthesia. So, um, so yeah, so that, that helps too. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So right now, which is wonderful, you're pregnant with twins. <laughs> you have 
twins um, on the way. At, uh, how many weeks are you now? We're like 28. 28. Okay. Almost 29, okay. I think. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like really wonderful, great news. And obviously we've heard over the last couple hours, you haven't always gotten great news. And this whole um, experience path, whatever you want to call it, it's just like a friggin' roller coaster. Like there's a bunch of emotions I'm sure that come up for you, particularly recurrent pregnancy loss and then having to have, you know, to use a gestational carrier. Like there are people going through this that struggle. What was the most helpful thing for you in kind of dealing with all of this stuff? Cause obviously, I mean, still right now, I mean, no one expects you to be like a hundred percent, like, you know, like nothing ever happened to you, but for those who are struggling, what do, you, what do you think would be super helpful? What do you recommend that people do, you know, no matter where they are? Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So, I mean, I, for me, I would, I would say like the first, so I'm, I'm like, uh, what, like nine years we've been, we've been trying to conceive for nine years, right? IVF for seven years. Um, I think the first, like even the first like year, before IVF, you know, I feel like that's when like all the, it started, you know, all the emotions really started, right? Like knowing, like there was definitely a lot of sadness around like knowing it was going to be hard for us to conceive and knowing that we had to do IVF. Right. And then basically like, um, you know, I was, I started doing IVF and then probably like two or three years into doing IVF, um, you know, it was just, there was just so much like focus on sadness. And for me, there was a lot of like pain too, right? Physical pain from my endometriosis that would uh, flare up every time I did a, you know, stimulation cycle for egg retrievals. Um, so there was just like, I feel like there was a lot of focus on like sadness. There was a lot of focus on hopelessness and pain and suffering and like feeling left behind, right? Cause like now I'm 35, 37, 38, and like all of my friends have had multiple babies now, right? Um, and like, um, so, you know, and I, I think like that experience, you know, is like totally valid and totally normal. And if I'd chosen to focus on all those emotions, like that would have been totally valid and acceptable. Right. And understandable. But it basically, you know, I feel like it got so hard for me and like, um, and then, and around that time, you know, I was like invited to check out some like meditation and mindfulness classes, um, which of course I already knew that would be helpful. Right. And then like, especially as an integrated physician, I definitely talk about mindfulness and meditation all the time. Right. But I, that was definitely something I had like had not incorporated. Like I was already, I feel like I was already doing all the things right in terms of lifestyle to help like support my endometriosis, support my IVF journey, but the mental, emotion, the mental emotional piece, you know, I feel like I was trying, but I didn't necessarily make it like a, as much of a priority, you know? So I started taking classes for, you know, mindfulness and meditation and like, and mindset, you know, kind of shifting my mindset. Um, and it, you know, it's, um, when I started taking the classes and like, I was definitely like, okay, like this is like really powerful. And I really like, I definitely need to like focus on this area, you know, but it's not like I like, it's not like my mindset like shifted right away. Right. Like I still think it took me a couple of years of like training and like consistency right before I really started to see like shifts in the way I was thinking, you know? So I feel like there's a lot of like, you know, the first couple of years is like trying to tell myself I'm okay and telling myself like, you know, like, um, you know, be grateful and like, you're enough and like, you know, um, don't be attached to the outcome, but it, it still took a couple of years of like 
doing that training before it really like, before I really owned it, right? Before I really like believed it, I guess, you know? So I think that's probably the biggest thing because I really don't think if I hadn't, um, if I, so, so now, so I feel like, you know, a couple of years, a couple years after like, you know, a couple of years of like doing more training and kind of paying, having more attention and focus in this area, you know, and shifting to more like gratitude and just being like, okay, you know, I'm really grateful that we can keep trying. Right. I'm really grateful that they still have, like they are very reserved to keep trying. Right. Not everybody has that. Um, I'm grateful that, you know, financially we can, we can afford to keep trying. Right. Cause not everybody has that um, privilege at all. Um, and then also just knowing that like, you know, um, just having more like, Having more acceptance around the fact that, you know, I like, hey, I can do everything right, right? I can do all my research. I can see all the right doctors. I can take all my supplements and do all my like complimentary, like, you know, treatments and lifestyle changes. And like, um, but ultimately, like, I have no control over the outcome, right? Which is that that's the hard one for me to accept because I do feel like there's a little bit of that, like, especially growing up with like immigrant parents and like growing up Asian American, there's a little bit of that mentality. It's like, if you're a good girl, if you work hard, you can get what you want. Right. Which does come from a, you know, there's some privilege behind that sentiment, but you know, um, there's, there's a little bit of that there. So it's just kind of like, okay, you know, I'm already like, I'm already like eating pretty healthy. I'm already doing all the, seeing all the right doctors. Okay. I'm meditating. Why hasn't this happened for yeah. me? You know? Well, so, we expect so effort go, to like, you know, equal outcome. And in this space, effort yeah, exactly. does not yeah. equal outcome. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, that's like, that's the thing I also, and that's even as a physician, right. Even though like intellectually I knew that, but emotionally I also had to accept the fact that, Hey, my, our, my body, my husband's body, it's going to do whatever it wants. You know, we can do, we can give it a lot of support and guidance, but sometimes our bodies are going to just do things that we can't control, you know, and the same thing goes for like IVF outcomes. So I think like really like accepting that, like, Hey, we're going to do the best we can. And like, you know, maybe we'll get a good outcome, but maybe we won't. And, and, um, and it's okay to grieve and be sad about that negative outcome. But, you know, um, but if I choose like, to don't stay, stay in it. Yeah, yeah. Like if I stay in the sadness for too long, like then like, how is it going to serve me? Right. And, and these, these are all lessons that intellectually I knew like, and then, you know, like, and you know, like I know anybody going through this intellectually, you know, this, right. Intellectually, you know, if I stay in sadness, it's not going to help me, but but um, by like practicing it and really feeling it and really owning it, it takes a lot of training and consistency to get there, you know. So I think that was that was huge for me. I think because um, I don't know if I could have kept going. Like I don't know if I could keep, you know, like doing like true, like honestly, the year that year when I spent, I was doing IVF every month. Like honestly, it wasn't that bad, you know. But it was because of my mindset. If I had tried to do that a year or two earlier, I don't think I, I wouldn't have been able to get through it, you know. Um, and then. The other, the other, like, I guess, like mindset shift that was really big for me is just really like, um, and this one was really hard for me to accept like this one. And, and I can't say I'm like fully there yet, but I think I'm a lot closer where it's just kind of like an understanding, like, you know, Hey, like my husband and I, you know, we have a really good life. Like we're super lucky. There's so many aspects of our life that are amazing and wonderful. And, you know, um, if we have a kid, um, that would be amazing, you know, but if we don't like, we still have it, like, it doesn't change the fact that we still have a good life, you know? And, you know, and I still like, you know, as I'm speaking, as I'm saying this to you, I still have, there, there are some sadness that's showing up. So like, like I said, I'm not fully there yet, but I think like, you know, I, I do think that um, having more peace and acceptance around like, Hey, you know, if we have a kid, that'd be great. But if we don't, we're going to be okay. You know, like we still have a good life regardless. And so, um, so I think that's also been helpful for me in terms of, you know, how I was able to keep going. Um, 
is just knowing that, you know, like we still, you know, we still have a good life either way. Well, and I think it's important to say that, um, because in our brains, we had this picture of what, uh, this would look like for all of us. Every single one of us had Mm -hmm. some vision. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, you know, a month of mindfulness isn't going to make, isn't going to change a lifetime's, no, you know, um, vision of of what, but I just want people to know that if they're struggling with that, that the expectation isn't that with a month of mindfulness classes, you're going to be able to shift this. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, exactly. Like I told you, you know, right. Like it took, you know, it took me probably two or uh, probably a good two years, you know, of like, and it's not like I was doing, I wasn't doing, I wasn't meditating every day. I wasn't like taking classes every day. I wasn't, you know, like, to be honest, I was like, I had some degree of consistency in my life with, you know, with, with that space and training, but it wasn't, it wasn't intense, you know, it wasn't all the time. And it, and then it took, and, you know, and it took me a good, like, you know, two, you know, plus years of doing it consistently where before I, before I could feel like, okay, you know what, this is like, yeah, my focus is, my focus is different now. And it's a little bit different, you know, and it's, it's not like, it's not like I've completely let go of like all the sadness and all the trauma, you know, but the focus is just not, not on all of that sadness and trauma as much as it was before, you know, and, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, like if, you know, this is a very challenging and traumatic and sad and hopeless experience, you know, so if it is, and you choose to, if you choose to stay in it, it's perfectly okay. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not like you're doing anything wrong. It's just, but it's more like, okay, well, if you choose to stay in it, that's okay. But you know, if you want to have a, a different experience, you can, but it's also, but it is really hard. It's, it's, you know, it's not easy to, to, to shift that. Focus. Yeah. But I also want to say, if you are very, very low, then obviously you need, you should get help. And, you know, if, if you're really like down in the dumps, like, you know, suicide prevention hotline, all that stuff um, is helpful for of that. Course, because of course, yeah, yeah, I absolutely. think, I mean, there are some people and, you know, we've talked to some of them where like this, um, this, roller coaster ride is just so devastating um because it is hard to take yeah. loss after loss after loss after loss for you know it is for yeah s- some people like you like you know close to 10 years of it it can wear on your mind and body yeah you know and if you're in that space yeah yeah i guess my point is like you know it's okay to be sad right obviously but if it becomes so disruptive um yes it's good to it's good to take action and seek help but and, you know, to your point, like, you know, I, and I, I, you probably have shared this on your Instagram too, where, you know, they, they talk, they, they've done studies on how, like, you know, people that are going through infertility, like their levels of depression are like, are pretty significant. Like, I think, you know, like it's, I don't remember the stats, but it's like very high, you know, almost everybody that does IVF, like has some degree of depression. So it's definitely very real. And from like an integrative approach, is there anything to kind of help with that? Like, can you... Would you, if someone were to come see you and say, hey, I'm going through IVF, I'm kind of feeling these things, like what are some things that you would add to, or what would you recommend for their lifestyle to kind of help with that? Like aside from the mindfulness stuff that we talked about too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess in it, besides mindfulness, um, I mean, I, you know, I think, I do think diet is important, but I, I don't think we have to be like really strict on it. You know, I think it's important to like, um, you know, cause like if doing a very limiting, if a, if making a big diet change, right. Tends to be pretty stressful for people. 
And so I think it's important to like, listen to that. If, if you find that it is like making you sad and miserable, because, you know, stress is also very inflammatory too. Right. And so I think, um, I think diet wise, I, I do think food and diet is very important. Um, when it comes to people that are trying to conceive, but, and this is both the male and the female, not just the, you know, cause I know, um, I feel like, you know, male infertility is um, the male's role in, in, in infertility is not really, um, emphasized as much, but, but I, you know, I, I think like, you know, making some small changes that you can maintain, um, can be really impactful. It doesn't have to be this whole, like give up all these big food groups and like do it a hundred percent, you know? So, so I think, you know, I think food is really important. I think the mindfulness piece is really important. Um, uh, you know, that, and then, I, I mean, I think, you know, I think like, I think acupuncture definitely has its value, right? With uh, IVF. Sorry, what's your question about like, just in general, like if people specifically about, yeah, so like if people like, are coming in and they're like yeah. coming to see you, they're having trouble conceiving mm-hmm. or they're going through IVF and they're, you yeah. know, like okay. you said, you yeah. have some degree of depression. So, you know, would you recommend moving more? Would you recommend like as far as from an integrative approach, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. lifestyle stuff that we yeah, can yeah. do? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I would say the guests like, you know, food, food and diet, that's important. I think um, the meditation mindfulness is mindfulness piece is important. And, you know, it, it can be like working with a therapist, a mindset coach, you know, like doing classes, you know, but it also, it can really like, I think even as simple as like, you know, like, um, like take a moment out of your day and maybe sit for like five minutes or even just two minutes. Right. And like, take a deep breath, close your eyes, relax your body fully. I mean, even that, you know, can, cause like that, most of us, you know, we have very busy and full lives, right? Especially if you're adding IVF into the picture, right? And so we're just kind of going, going all day, right? So our fight and flight, you know, response is like kind of always activated, right? We're always like our mind and our bodies are always just going, going, going. You know, if you're like, you're, if you're, if you're in between activities, you're probably thinking about the next thing, right? And so that definitely creates like your cortisol levels are going to be high, right? Your um, epinephrine and norepinephrine are going to be activated too. So and so this creates like a big like sort of stress response in the body. So I think even if you can just like, um, you know, there's like a lot of studies that show like taking deep breaths, right, can be enough to kind of like lower your cortisol and kind of like reset your nervous system and get you out of that fight and flight response. So if you're able to find like a minute or two even, right, to sit down and just really make sure you're relaxed. You know, most of us carry tension in our neck and shoulders. Um, and so just like relax your neck and shoulders, relax your body, close your eyes if you can, take a few deep breaths, really breathe into your belly, Right breathe into your pelvic floor. Cause this is really good for just like, you know, um, increasing circulation to that area. Um, I think that can be enough, right. To just kind of like get your cortisol levels to come down and like, get your, like get your body to get your nervous system to kind of like step out of that fight and flight response that you're probably having. And even if you go right back into your day, right. And like things are crazy, you know, um, you're like, you're like your cortisol levels are probably going to still be lower than they were before. Right. They might go back up. They might jump up again, but they're probably not going to be as high as they were before, before you took that few moments for yourself. So when I talk about like mindfulness and meditation and therapy and all that, you know, it doesn't have to be this big commitment, right? It could just be like a couple minutes a day, just sit and relax and like ground yourself for a moment. Right. Um, and then, yeah, I definitely think movement is important, right? Of course, like, cause the movement also means like, you know, like, um, it means like things are, you know, like things are, you know, blood flow, circulation. This is also good. You know, you're increasing circulation to your like pelvic organs, right? So that's obviously important when it comes to like trying to conceive. Um, I think like strength training is really important when it comes to um, supporting your hormones and like healthy hormone pathways. 
So I think adding that in is important too. It doesn't have to be heavy weights, but you know, just some, um, some strength training is important. Um, and then, yeah, those are, and then I, you know, I do think that like the, the, you know, there's a few supplements that like a lot of people recommend, like a lot of REIs are recommending. I think those are great too. I think your vitamin D is important when it comes to hormones, omega threes, right. For they have some anti-inflammatory properties. Um, I like NAC because that also has like support some of your detox pathways and is good for hormones. Um, I like CoQ10 and NAD also for mitochondria support, you know, our ovaries, um, our ovaries and, you know, um, and our testicles, right. They all like actually have like a lot of like those cells have a lot of mitochondria. So the more that we can like support our mitochondria is just good for, you know, trying to conceive. Um, those are probably the main things, you know, I think that are like, those are the things I've done that I think I find help. I find helpful. These are the things that, you know, I do have some patients that come in because they're trying to conceive or they're doing IVF and they want, you know, support from an integrated physician. So those are the things I, you know, tend to focus on. I know that there's an REI that like is uh, recommending ozone sauna. And so I think that's really cool that there's REIs thinking about that. Cause, um, I think, uh, ozone, um, you know, I've done a lot of IV ozone for myself in my like fertility journey. Um, and so like, you know, ozone has like a lot of anti-inflammatory properties too. So I think that that is another, like, you know, if you're, it's, it's, it is like, you know, a little bit more invasive and a little bit more involved, but that's also something that I think can be helpful. Um, so like there's, you know, so many difficult things that have come up, um, along this space, but, um, what do you think is something positive, um, that's come up for you having gone through all of this? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I'm a very different person. Like I'm, um, like I think after, you know, going through all, going through all this, um, I think like it's, you know, I think, um, like the kind of parent I'm going to be is going to be, it's very different because of this. I think it also has like, you know, positively influenced the kind of physician that I am and the way that I, you know, the way that I care for my patients. And, you know, it's, it's also impacted, like, I think the way that I, um, even the way like, you know, I communicate with like my husband and my family members, you know, so, cause I think like this, um, one of the good things about having such a challenging journey was that I, I had, you know, like I, I had to like do everything I could, can't like, I felt like I had to do everything I had, I could do right to like improve my endometriosis and improve my egg quality. And a lot of those things also translate to like, you know, just better, like overall health and wellness. Right. So, so, okay. So my, the way that, um, the way that my dad parented me, um, was that he was very like, and this is, you know, like, I don't, um, I don't judge him for this, but the way he parented me was that he's very tough on himself and he's very tough on like everyone around him. Right. Um, so he was tough on me and my mom and my siblings. Right. And he learned this from like his parents. Right. And they probably learned it from their parents. Right. So it was very much like a generational trauma that was like passed on. Right. And so as a result of that, I also learned to be very tough on myself too. Right. And also be, and, I'm all, and I also tend to be tough on the people that I'm close with, like my family and my husband. Right. And so I think like this, you know, if I had like, um, if I had, so if our transfer, so say if we had gotten pregnant without IVF, or even if like the transfers in 2018 had worked, um, I probably wouldn't have taken the time to like, you know, learn about myself and learn about my emotions and learn about my patterns and like, and really try to train the way that I, you know, train some of those patterns and shift them. Right. And so most likely I would have continued that and I would have been like really tough on my kids. And then like, and, you know, continued and it would have been tough on my husband and, and, you know, um, versus like now, um, 
because like, you know, because my IVF journey was so challenging, I had to do that work. Otherwise I felt like I couldn't have survived it. Right. And so I did that work. And so now I have all this awareness about, you know, my dad's patterns and what he did and what he learned and like how he influenced me. And like, and then I learned like, what can I do differently and how, like, and what kind of parent do I want to be? And so, um, yeah, so I feel like that's probably like, you know, the best example I can give you in terms of like, you know, I, you know, not to say that I've not don't, I'm not tough on myself. still, and I'm not tough on the, on the people around me. still. but I've, I've but I've shifted that I have so much awareness around that. So I definitely think I'm going to be a very different parent now because of the time, the extra time that it took us took for us to conceive, right? Forced me to like, or like, how challenging it was for us to conceive and how long it took for us to conceive, right? Forced me to really like, you know, do the work on myself. And, and because of that, you know, I think it's going to make me a very different parent um, than I would have been. And definitely like, and, you know, and kind of, and end all that generational trauma, you know, that. Yeah. I mean, um, so I'm Asian also, so <laughs> uh, we probably had very similar upbringings and, and same thing, you know, like I do yeah. feel like um, we are very hard on ourselves and we demand, uh, perfection we demand you know uh nothing less than like superior from us and everyone else around us and whatever standard we have for other people is about you know 100 times more for ourselves so like i totally yeah like yeah. get that and it's true i think it um this uh forces you to really kind of surrender to some degree and to kind of like take a step back and say okay like I got to like, I got to rethink some of this stuff um, and just kind of take it easy because like you said, all that extra stress um, does not help <laughs> the experience at all either. You know yeah. what I mean? All that actually, I mean, we, we put enough pressure on ourselves on a daily basis, just like yeah. existing yeah. <laughs> and then the pressure we put on ourselves to have these outcomes be like optimal is just like bonkers, you know? So I think um, yeah. having I think recognizing that. And I think a lot of, when you listen to a lot of these stories, a lot of us will say the same thing. Like, Oh my gosh, like I learned that I am this different person now because of all this work that I've had to do on myself, which is yeah, like the yeah. upside. If yeah. there is one to like this whole thing is that it forces <laughs> you to look within yourself. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Although if I'm being honest, like I, I would have loved to have had all this growth and mind shift yes. and like, you know, change and transformations without, without 20 retrievals, this trauma and heartache and loss. Yeah. 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 Like, you know what? Fine. All that, like, you know, one, honestly, yeah. one, two, two retrievals, one yeah. transfer, maybe yeah, two exactly. and then like call it good. But yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I would love that. But I also, I obviously, you know, as we all know, life doesn't work that way. No, so, wouldn't that be great you know? if we could like, <laughs> so here we, call our so own here shots. we are. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. And, and still grow yeah. and still be, you know, like, yeah. Cause I do, I, I do, yeah, like I said, you know, I recognize that like, you know, these challenges definitely, there's so much I learned from them. And uh, that was another thing I, I feel like I, you know, like back to what we were talking about earlier, I feel like it was very much like, okay, if like, you know, year one, year two. Okay, I've already grown and learned from this experience. Can we? Can we? Yeah, have our yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like okay, year yeah. four, year five. All yeah. right, I've grown yeah. far. Like, can we have our? Yeah, you know, like, you're like, look, you made your point. So, I get it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. Just, just obviously, yeah. it, it doesn't point made. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you kind of talked about this, but what are some signs 
uh, of endometriosis for you. So you said painful periods, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I have, um, I have painful, I have pain with my period. So for me, it's usually like, it's just, you know, cycle day one through like three, I have like cramping and then I'll, I'll, I tend to have bloating throughout the whole month, but it, I feel, it, but it did used to be just like around like my periods, but now it's like the whole month for me. Um, but it is worse, um, around like, you know, the beginning, like the first week of my cycle. Um, so those are my like original symptoms that I had for endometriosis. Um, I think sometimes I would get backache. It was usually cramping that was consistent and bloating. Um, sometimes I would get like some backaches. Um, and then, uh, some, there were some months where I would have also nausea and vomiting. Those are definitely when it was like pretty severe and that wasn't common, but, um, that's what I had, uh, for like, you know, until I had my surgery. And then, and then after my surgery, I started having like a lot of like bladder irritation. So anytime my bladder would get full, it would be like very uncomfortable and almost painful. Um, and then I also have like painful bowel movements. Um, and then I, I also had just other like aches and pains in my low back and like, like kind of my, like, um, like my hips. Um, and those were the newer symptoms that would, that, and those would go, you know, for like basically the first two weeks of my cycle and then they would get better after I ovulated. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then and I, I think those are my endos. I think I'll add to for like in general, people can have painful periods, heavy periods. Um, you. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes. Painful yeah. periods, heavy periods. Minors, mine are super heavy. Yeah. 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 Um, and then some people can have like uh, bladder, bowel uh, problems, like um, sometimes almost like UTI type painful. symptoms. Pain- yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No. Um, painful intercourse. Yes. too. Was uh was one of my yeah, painful intercourse was one of them too. Which was you know especially like because there were you know there were like occasionally there were months where like we were not doing IVF and we're like well even though it's like highly unlikely that timed intercourse would work for us like I was like well we might as well try right but it was like it's free yeah exactly (laughs) but but then uh, but you know this is like but at this point this is when my my I was having now now I was having pain like around like before ovulation too so. Yeah. So that was hard too. Cause I was like, okay, my body really, really does not want to work for like, it's not working you know, with yes. us for our goals. Yes. But So yeah. So yeah. I think just in general, in case people are thinking they have endometriosis, but also like we had mentioned like um, in the beginning that you could have zero, you could have nothing and still have endometriosis. But yeah, the common exactly. things are usually heavy periods, painful periods, <clears throat> uh, painful intercourse. Um, yeah. Those are all like, those are kind of the major ones that people will experience yeah exactly Um, exactly yeah okay heavy periods and also just like you know like it's normal to like you know see like tissue when you like have a normal menstrual like a normal period but you know if you're seeing like a lot of tissue and a lot of clots too that can also be part of endometriosis as well um okay and then i think you mentioned this earlier but i don't remember which one it was but um, which drug protocol works best for you and why oh yeah okay so i tried yeah good question okay so i did Three antagonist protocols that didn't seem to work well for me. Like we weren't getting the quality. Keep in mind, this is only day three, right? But the quality and the, um, like the, so the way that the embryos looked and then the cell counts and then the number of embryos was, was lower with these protocols. And then we did four of the long agonist protocols and those like, you know, 37, 39, you know, 37, they work well. 39, they started to work not as well, but we were like only getting like two embryos each time. 
And then, um, and then basically our last one we did when I was like 40, it like really, oh, no, sorry. We also did the one micro dose flare protocol and we tried this one at 40, but that also didn't work. Um, so at 37, I would say the law, the long agonist protocol worked well for us. And this is the one, if it, um, if you want me to tell you what that looked like, this is the one we did like Lupron. I think we like, I would like basically I would ovulate. I would do Lupron for about like two weeks. Then I'd get my menstrual cycle. We would continue to Lupron and then we would add on um, the same, the same medications. Um, so those seem to work pretty well for me at 37. Um, but then like 40, they kind of like started to, you know, our, we started to get like, you know, less and less um, embryos each time. So, and then, and then at 40, 41 is when I switched to um, the, the third REI and we were doing um, the, the mini sim. And even with that, so like, even then I was still challenging for that REI. So where it took him, he tried a couple of protocols before he got to like what worked for us. Um, but it was still all within the mini stim, you know, like protocol. But basically, you know, he started off with like, he started with Clomid and Falstim for the first couple. And then, and then he switched to trying um, Menopure and Clomid. And that seemed to be better for me. Um, so you got some love here. Someone just said, by the way, I love her. <laughs> so you got some love. Um, okay. Th- <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thoughts on seeing a reproductive immunologist when all your tests are normal? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I guess that was me, right? Cause like, cause we, cause I guess we knew that we had, I mean, I did know I have endometriosis, right? Cause I did do my laparoscopic surgery at that time, but, um, but we hadn't done any transfers yet. So we didn't wait for, you know, a failed transfer or like a miscarriage, right? And then I think lab testing wise, we just, at that point, we, I think we had just done all the like, just a normal like IVF testing. We hadn't explored any like immune labs yet, you know? So, but I mean, I think that, I think if you suspect that you have, if you, obviously if you have any autoimmune condition, right, um, it's probably worth it to do some immune panel, you know, and, and some, I think some REIs might be willing to do like parts of it, you know, so I think it's worth it to, to do that. Um, cause you know, they, uh, so, yeah, but I mean, I, I think, you know, I think the people that would be good candidates would be like, if you, you know, obviously if you, if you have an autoimmune already and already known autoimmune, it might be worth it to ask your REI, Hey, can you run a couple extra, you know, tests maybe, um, and then I think for people that, you know, suspect that they have endometriosis, um, either whether, they, whether, whether confirmed or not, you know, I think it's also worth it to like, at least start with your REI, right. And ask them like, you know, can you do some immune testing for me? Cause I, I mean, my impression was also like, especially, especially with the, the, the REI that I did the most transfers with, you know, he was already going to put me on like his version of an immune protocol, you know? So, um, so I think that that's something that, my assumption is that I think a lot of REIs already are comfortable doing that, you know? So, um, and a lot of these immune meds, I think like, you know, I think, um, I don't know. I like, we work so hard, right. To make these embryos. So, you know, I think like it's, I think it's, um, if you suspect that, you know, it might be challenging, I think it's worth it to give that embryo the best chance. Yeah. Right. To Like for me, <clears throat> like my thought look. was that I, at, at this moment in time, I, only have one embryo to transfer and I'm not going to risk it. And so, yeah. um, like, and you know, I just found out I had 
confirmed endometriosis. So then I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. And yeah, I'm just yeah. going to, because here's the thing you can do a consultation and then choose not to move forward with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, like you can get the consultation and then you can take that information with you. The downside is the lab work is really expensive. Um, you know, cause they all send it to the, um, lab in Chicago or I think it's in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. Chicago. Yeah, that I saw. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they all send it to that lab. Right. And um, it's not cheap. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my total cost for like blood work is probably close to 3000 Yeah. I mean, because none of it's covered by my yeah. health plan. So yeah. I'm, I would say probably. I mean, I haven't gotten the final yeah. bill yet, but I, as of right now, I've spent. Ugh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, I'm just a lab. Yeah. I mean, you know. It's kind of like part of the process. So, I mean, you could choose to do a consultation. You could choose to do blood work, but just know it's expensive it is, if yeah. you have no coverage yeah. for it. And I don't even know if, if you do have fertility coverage, whether or not it covers any of this stuff either. Yeah, I don't remember. I remember with the first RI, because um, it was like a specialty lab, we paid out of pocket. But the second RI, um, a lot of the labs, I believe, were not all of them, but a lot of them, were, I think, were run through like, some of the like, you know, like LabCorp Quest. I don't remember which one I think, but uh, so, and be, and I have a PPO insurance at the, you know, so I think That's that helped. I yeah. think that helped. I have an HMO. Um, I don't remember what I paid up. I don't remember what I paid up. Yeah. Everything's no, denied. <laughs> They're like, nope. Our, our, our health, uh, I know. That's a our separate podcast our episode. healthcare system. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> That's a separate episode, which yeah, I am exactly. happy to rage against yeah. but I uh that's a whole nother thing yeah. but yeah so you know for me and I'm not a physician but for me as a patient knowing that I only have one embryo to work with knowing that I have endometriosis knowing that I get one shot at this I am willing to look into it and then kind of find out more information and decide what I want to do for yeah them, so yeah yeah absolutely yeah. yeah and then so this next question is um what do you think about frozen day three um, as well as frozen day fives? Yeah. Uh, I mean, for for me, it wasn't like really, it wasn't really an option, at least with my second REI, right? Because he never felt like we had enough. Um, but he said he felt by day three that we didn't have enough embryos that looked, that were like good enough quality, right? For him to want to go to day five. Um, you know, obviously like, his preference, my preference too, would be that we could work with day fives. You know, day fives are definitely more desirable, right? We have like higher confidence that they're going to, even day fives untested, right? would be better than the day three. Um, but I think like for the second REI, for him, it was not really, he never really like, I, I, and trust me, I like, you know, he is great. We have a great relationship. You know, I trust him, but I still questioned him all the time about like, wait, should we do, should we try day five this time? Should we let me, he's like, he was like, and, and he always, you know, I feel like he gave it good consideration, but he was like, no, I, you know, I just, I think you're going to just lose them, you know, and you'll have nothing to transfer. So for him, it was never a consideration um, or never really like, you know, we never actually like, you know, it was never like a, a real serious consideration for, for us to do, work with day fives. Um, with the third REI, you know, um, like all the other REIs that I've talked to, they, of course, he, he was like, let's, let's try to go to day five. And, and so this is like, you know, I've already, I'd already done like, you know, like the, a bunch of retrievals. I've already done like four transfers, right? I already saw that, like, you know, um, 
that like we did have euploid embryos from our miscarriages, you know, so uh, um, so I already had like good data that showed, yeah, my, my second aria is probably right. We should probably stick with day threes. Right. But I was like, you know what? New, new REI, like new plan, like, you know, let's, sure. Let's, let's try it. You know? So, so I did do two cycles with the third REI where we tried to go to day five, you know, and the same thing happened where we had nothing to use, you know, and by day three, they looked really, you know, we had like two or three embryos for each cycle. And by day three, they look great, you know, but then by day five, they were either, one cycle, we had nothing to work with. Then nothing made it to day five. And then the other cycle, one made it to day five, but it didn't look great. And then it was aneuploid, you know? So, um, so, you know, even after all of that, I still tried to, you know, I tried again to do day five and it just, and, and so no, I was say at that point, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm good. We, we gave it a good yeah. shot. Let, let's stay let's the stick course. With the day threes. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then do you yeah. know, do the day threes thaw as well as day fives? Uh, I don't, I guess I don't, I don't know what the answer is like across the board, you know, but I know ours seem to do fine. You know, every time we like did you it, didn't you know. lose any from, from the thought process. No, we didn't. Um, yeah, we, no, not at all. Um, yeah. Like I, you know, like all of our transfers that we did, you know, so we had done eight transfers. Yeah. We have done eight transfers now and like all of them and all of them, you know, all of them, the embryos seem to do fine with the thought. Good question though. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. Okay. We went through so much today. So if people want to connect <laughs> with you, if they want to work with you, if they have questions for you, how do they reach out to you? How do they connect with you? How do they work with you? How do they come see you in your office? How does this work? Yeah. Um, thanks for asking. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, there's my Instagram account, right. Which is Dr. Annie Quo. And then, um, and then there's also my office is based in LA. We're in Glendale. Um, so my office is uh, Oasis Family Medicine. So you can also, you know, just call our office if you want to, if you want to connect with me as a patient. Um, I mean, for sure, like I acknowledge, like I have a lot of privilege, which has allowed me to continue and do all the things that I've done. But, you know, I've uh, like, I've had some like before IVF, you know, I've had like, I've had major losses. I've had like mental health issues. I've, you know, I've had some challenges. Um, and even though I'm a physician, even, even though I'm an integrative physician, right. Um, these years of doing IVF were like, Honestly, like some of the hardest, you know, the hardest moments, the hardest years, the hardest months for me. Um, so to me, like, you know, the, it's really important to me to support others who are either trying to conceive or doing IVF. Um, just because, you know, it was, it was so hard for me. I, my hope is that it's not so hard for, I would love it if it wasn't so hard for other people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you start early, you know, like if you, if you know, and particularly, so this is like a whole other thing I want to talk about in primary care, but <clears throat> if we start <laughs> having these conversations around this stuff sooner, right? Like in exactly, your yeah. regular annual exams, you're like, Hey, by the way, you're like 33 FYI around 35, right. these things start to happen. We can monitor yep. your AMH over time. If you would like to, does it mean yep. that you're committed to starting your family or whatever? Right. But if we, exactly. if we did that, let's say you, you got someone like, like you were at 33, got an AMH right. and it was low or whatever. You could say, Hey, by the way, heads up. And I get it. Like people are like, mm -hmm. yeah, but a lot of people don't have problems. But for the people who find out way too late that they do, it's devastating. Yeah. It's like saying don't screen for cancer because certain cancers are so like 
you know, rare or whatever that you don't find them or it, it's, it isn't often that these things pop up and it's like, right. well, then do we just not screen for them? No, like you still screen for them, you know, and it's such an easy thing to do. Uh, it's not exceptionally costly or anything. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's a bad idea to work with someone, particularly someone like you who can fully understand that in like the family practice space where you don't even, it's not like you have to go see, you know, a, um, an REI for that too. It's just like a screening. And then if something's weird, then, you know, you can send them off to their REI to kind of further discuss it. Or even if you just wanted to know, like, what are some lifestyle changes to make in your life to optimize this for the future? Yeah. You can start that early, you know, which I think is so important. Yeah. And it, it does not get discussed in the primary care space. No, 100%. Oh, no, Family exactly. planning, quote unquote, is where they talk about oral contraception and stuff like that. Exactly. But that's not the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all, that's all. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree. I mean, like, you know, I mean, I know we're like, this is also, this also could be another podcast episode where we just talk about women's health, right? Because like, in general, I mean, the family planning piece, yes, in terms of trying to conceive, but also like women's health, right? It's so neglected, right? And so, so I'm so like, like, you know, um, like, you know, like, I'm so grateful that, you know, um, my challenges just allow me to serve everybody so much better, right? Because like, you know, like, you know, women, girls, women should not accept that having painful periods is normal and okay, you know, and they shouldn't, you know, they, and they, and they should know like, Hey, you know, family planning. Yes. You might be able to conceive e- easily, but you never know. And like life, you know, life gets busy. You want to focus on your career. You know, we should plan for it. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So we'll just have to plan to have another longer discussion about how how yeah. our medical system has disappointed us and how women's yeah. health is not addressed. Especially and um, yeah, yeah. How, <laughs> yes, no yeah. Um, so uh, we'll just book some more time for that. But like, I want to thank you for spending your time with me today and going through all this and sharing your story. I know it was not easy. And so I'm so, so grateful that Aww. you took the time to yeah. share your story, your expertise so that all of us can kind of benefit from this because um, you have so many things that um, you've experienced that could be so beneficial for people um, to kind of explore and, um, you know, offering your services as an integrative physician into the fertility space too. In in the primary care arena, I think is such a, an important thing to kind of um, delve into because that's the first stop for most people is primary care. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, that's the first place we can get all this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so, so grateful for you. Well, thank you too. Thank you for, thank you for supporting this community with your podcast and your Instagram. Like, I think, I know you already have a busy full-time job, right? And I know you're already, you're also busy trying to grow your family, right? Which is another job. So I really appreciate that you and like all the others who are like out there trying to educate and support um, cause you know, we just need, we definitely need more people talking about this, right? We need more people educating. We know we need more people like li- normalizing. Well, that's right. That's a big thing too. Normalizing these conversations about fertility and how hard it is and, and how important it is to plan that part of our lives. So, so yeah, thank you too. I'm so grateful to connect with you. Thank you for inviting me. And if anyone, for everyone, for all, all the people that might be listening to this, I'm also thankful that people are checking us out, checking out your podcast, checking yeah. out my story. Really yes. Well, I mean, I, I think, like you said, like to kind of join the conversation that is already happening quietly, but is happening 
we just need yeah. to make the conversation louder and to exactly, amplify yeah. it. So yeah, I, so I that think, hopefully you know California will yes. offer fertility coverage for everybody, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> and other I know, states, are there any too. politicians yeah. hearing this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, um, they're probably not listening, but I'm like, it's it's a super important thing. All the struggle that comes with it, yeah, it's yeah, bonkers that none yeah. of it is like covered at least exactly, in the state. Yeah. But, but yeah, again, that's another day in time. Yeah, but thank you so much for spending your day with me. And um, obviously, we're going to connect really soon because I yeah. definitely want to have more conversations. I think it'll be great to have another piece just talking about integrative medicine and how that can maybe even help fertility just from a general standpoint. You know, um, so we can certainly talk about that next time. So we'll put that on the books. But thank you so much for your time today. And uh, we will connect again soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes. And I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.